For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. This is the Sports Bash with Mike Gill on 97.3 ESPN. Now, live inside the Matt Black Kia Studios, here's Mike Gill. Happy Monday, one and all, the Sports Bash live, 97.3 ESPN, the 97.3 ESPN free mobile app. I'm your host, Mike Gill, Josh Hennings, producing today's show, You Out There. Well, we have a NBA Finals 1-1. We'll get into that in the 3 o'clock hour of the show. We'll also discuss a little Eagles OTAs and some Eagles stuff. Later on as well, Sixers, of course, make the news of Nick Nurse official last week. And some thoughts on that a little bit later on as well as we kind of move forward now to the NBA offseason once these finals get under, uh, get behind us. But I want to start with the Phillies weekend where they have won two straight, two in a row. Holy moly, that there's a streak. They beat the Washington Nationals yesterday and Saturday after losing the game on Friday, which had everybody uh, in a tizzy for a little bit. But have we finally seen some signs of them turning the corner here? You know, two straight wins against a pretty bad Washington Nationals team shouldn't convince anybody that the Phillies have all of a sudden turned the corner. And that's coming from someone like me who's not all that worried about this team. But I'm also not ready to say, hey, I'm convinced that the Phillies are ready to start, you know, going on an 8 out of 10 or 9 out of 11 or 10 out of 12 streak here. But there were some uh, positive signs over the weekend that I do want to highlight, along with some frustrating ones as well. One of the things that I think stands out over the weekend is obviously on Friday when we were on the air – out at the uh, Ranch Hope event, and that was a fantastic event, by the way, was the fact that the Phillies shook their lineup up a little bit. They went with Kyle Schwarber in the leadoff hole and basically, you know, flipped him and Turner, and Turner hit a little lower in the lineup. But one thing it did do over the weekend was possibly get Kyle Schwarber going just a little bit. He hit two homers yesterday. He had a couple of hits uh, over the weekend in the leadoff spot here. And that's pretty big news for a guy who had not been getting very many hits. You know, June is the month of Kyle Schwarber, and they moved him to the top of the order in June. Did you know this, that Kyle Schwarber actually has more home runs this year on June the 5th than he did last year on June the 5th? It doesn't feel like it, but Kyle Schwarber has 30 home runs the past three Junes. That is 10 more than anybody else. And he started June off, as you would expect, with a couple of home runs the other day. You know, last year he had a career-high 46 home runs. And now he actually is on pace to hit more than 46 home runs. So I'm pretty interested to see what ends up happening with Schwarber as he went back to the leadoff spot. 
what that does for him and what it does for Turner. So far, you know, traditionally we know it's a very big month for Schwarber. But what does this mean for Turner, who was brought here to really be at the top of the lineup here? You know, the Phillies, they lost Segura. They had to get somebody in the middle of the infield. They bring in Trey Turner. There's been a lot of talk over the weekend. I heard a lot of people discussing this and throughout the season, you know, that the Phillies should have not spent the money on Trey Turner, but instead went out and got more pitching. Well, here's the problem. You can only buy what's on the rack. Not too many people like to do custom work. So if it's not on the sale rack, you can't buy it sometimes. There wasn't a lot of pitching available to the Phillies this offseason. They went and made the decision, you know, to go to the clearance aisle and went and got Taiwan Walker. Well, sometimes you go clearance and you end up getting it and you can't return it. I tried them all when I got home, even though I only got them for $4.97. They didn't fit and I'm stuck with them. Well, you're kind of stuck with Walker because you didn't want to buy the regularly priced items. You wanted something on the clearance rack. And so many times when you see something on the clearance rack, you buy it just because. Eh, this thing was $40. Now it's only $4.97. This is something that happened to me last week, by the way. Saw a pair of shorts that were normally $36. They were on the clearance rack for $4.97, so I bought them. And then when I got home, I was like, eh. These shorts don't fit. Now I'm stuck with them. The Phillies did the same thing. Instead of going down and buying, you know, the new stuff, they went to the clearance item and saw oh, $4.97. Although the problem with Taiwan Walker is he didn't cost $4.97. You get my drift. They purchased... They didn't go to the clearance rack for Trey Turner. They walked into the store and said, find me your most expensive suit and tailor it for me. And right now, that tailored suit, unfortunately, the buyer gained weight and it doesn't fit. And Turner has not figured out how to get out of this slump that he's in. So we'll see. We'll see what ends up happening because it looks like two guys started to turn the corner this weekend, and it's pretty big for those two guys. One is Kyle Schwarber, who now has 15 home runs and 33 RBI. He's up to 172. Ho, ho, ho. Not great, but still, he went from 160 to 172 over the weekend. That's a pretty significant jump. But he hit the ball over the fence is what you need. He went oppo late in the game yesterday. So... Is Schwarber starting to turn the corner? The other guy you asked the question about, we talked about him on Friday's show, if you remember, was JT Romuto. You know, when the Phillies put their lineup out on Friday, I said, you know what? If Kyle Schwarber feels more comfortable in the leadoff spot, I'm okay giving him the shot to try to jumpstart it. You know, and then we were talking about, well, then there's JT Romuto. You know, Romuto has kind of gotten a little bit of a pass because if you look just simply at his batting average, you're like, oh, okay, he's had an okay season. Unfortunately, I say okay season. He's actually at 249 entering the weekend. Well, he went 0 for 5 on Friday night. But Saturday and Sunday, it looked like the light bulb finally went on for JT Romuto. Saturday, I thought that 
he really finally had a different approach, and he looked a lot more locked in. He went two for four. He went up from, you know, he goes two for four in the game. He goes up to 254, but he hit that home run in the sixth inning, and I really thought that swing looked like the JT Real Muto that got going when Harper got hurt last year. And then, you know, Saturday, he kind of had that swing that hit that home run that kind of made you feel like, okay, is he? and then Sunday, I thought he had some really good at-bats yesterday, JT did. He just looked like a different guy. Went two for five. He had another home run. All of a sudden, Romuto started the weekend at 249. He's up to 258. Schwarber, 160 up to 172. Is the Phillies offense finally starting to turn the corner? I'm not ready to go there just yet. You're facing a Nationals pitching staff, which is putrid. But sometimes it takes just getting a little confidence against a bad team that can get you jump-started. You got tonight Joey Wentz pitching for the Detroit Tigers. Not good. Over 7 ERA. This is the kind of guy that these guys that are trying to get going can maybe jump-start a little bit. So Schwarber, I don't know what the lineup is tonight. I would imagine is back. But how about this? They put Schwarber 1 on Sunday, Castellanos in the 2 spot. Castellanos, who was just a miserable um, free agent pickup last year, he went three for five yesterday. He's up to 316. He is, I think, third or fourth in the National League in, in hits. Uh, Castellanos is just having a really good year. And I was thinking about this this morning. You know, the Phillies are that team right now that, of course, you have been pretty down on all year. They were a fun playoff run, but you didn't have a fun regular season last year. It was a miserable regular season last year filled with this team stinks. It's time to do something different, blah, 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 same old Phillies. And at the beginning of this year, I said this would not be a fun season. And I don't think there's going to be a lot of fun in this regular season. You're just going to have to kind of hope that this team kind of gets going. But when you think about all the things this team has going against it so far, it's actually pretty impressive that they're actually in the spot that they're in. Honestly, I don't know how they've won as much as they have the way Turner's going. 232 for Turner, over five yesterday. Are you kidding me? Schwarber, the season he's had, has been terrible. Bryce Harper missing as many games as he has. No Hall, no Hoskins. The first base situation has been a disaster. Although Ellis yesterday, thank you very much, he had three at-bats and scored four runs. It's almost impossible. He did walk once and scored, but he hit two home runs and had three RBI. Schwarber, six ribbies in the game. So you got six ribbies from the leadoff spot, three more from the nine-hole yesterday. Drew Ellis cranking two home runs for the Phillies. Who had that on your June 4th bingo card? The Phillies, the fact that they have stayed afloat with all the things that are happening is pretty impressive when you think about it. You look at their lineups the other day and this yesterday and the day before, you ask yourself, how are the Phillies actually even in play right now with some of the seven, eight, nine hitters they roll out there? I mean, Ellis, Clements, Sosa, Marsh. I mean, I like Marsh. He's having a good season. But when you've got him anchoring the bottom of that lineup, you're thinking, my gosh, every night like this, they've got to just kind of hope that you think about this lineup, 
the only guy who has pretty much given them any sort of consistency is the one guy last year we asked for consistency from all year and never got it, was Castellanos. He's held up his end of the bargain. What will happen when the rest of these guys finally hold up their end of the bargain? Well, you had an 11-run outburst yesterday. Now, I'm not sitting here saying, hey, get ready for an offensive explosion because you know what happens normally when you score 11 runs. The next door day, you get two hits. But they're facing a guy tonight. We talked about this on Friday. You got Washington. You got Detroit. Can the Phillies finally get that 5-1 and one kind of streak going here where they win two out of three, maybe sweep a Tigers team that's kind of struggling along? Although the Tigers are better than you think. I just say Detroit Tigers, and you automatically imagine that they are horrendous. They're not horrendous right now. But they have lost three in a row. It's not a great pitching staff. They give up a ton of runs. They've been outscored this year by 64 runs on the season. Could the Phillies finally be turning the corner in the month of June? Look, we talk about this a lot. Baseball's a long, long season. The Mets fans were finally feeling pretty good about themselves. They swept the Phillies. Isn't it amazing in baseball how three days changes perspective so much. The Mets sweep you. You feel good about being a Mets fan all of a sudden. The Phillies get sweeped by the Mets. They're a dumpster fire. Well, three days later, the Mets got swept, and the Phillies won two out of three. And best, you take a look at the standings, and they're just about neck and neck again. New York is 30-30. and 30, Philadelphia is 27-32. and 32. You know, the Marlins are playing really good ball. They've won seven out of ten. You take a look at, you know, here is one thing. And I've said a lot, the Phillies, I think, are, are going to kind of have to hang around. They're four and a half games out of the wild card. I think they're going to have to stay in that four to six games back range around the all-star break and then hope that they have their guys kind of churning by that point. You get into the month of, you know, June, you got to start turning the corner in terms of your output. Schwarber, Turner. Hopefully you can get Harper hitting for power a little bit more. They need to figure out what they're going to do about a right-handed bat in the middle of that lineup. I don't know how you manufacture that. But here's the couple of things that, as the season starts to materialize, just a little bit. You know the Dodgers? The Dodgers and the Diamondbacks right now are tied for the wild card lead. So one of those will get in as the wild card winner. Will the other one get in as, well, one of them, excuse me, will get in as the division winner. Will the other one get in as the wild card winner? Well, you would have to imagine the Dodgers. Now, I made some predictions at the beginning of the season. One of my predictions was that the Dodgers may not, will not make the playoffs this year. My other one was that Baltimore will. Well, right now, Baltimore is two games up in the wild card. Baltimore's 37 and 22. I feel pretty good about them. I think the Dodgers, I said at the beginning of the year, of the teams that made the playoffs last year, I wouldn't be surprised if they didn't make it. Well, right now, them and Arizona are tied. Dead heat tied. 35 and 25. One of them will be the division winner. The question is, do both of those teams, Arizona, I guess, is the big one. Does Arizona have what it takes for the long season? Do they have? They've got good pitching. 
but do they have staying power for 162? I think Arizona's interesting. If L.A. gets in, we expected that. But we didn't expect, expect Arizona to be in the mix. So keep an eye on them. So realistically, one of those is the division leader. The other one's the wild card leader. So right now, number two in the wild card race is Pittsburgh. Pittsburgh is 31-27. and 27. They've won five straight games. It's a good young team, and they're playing without their best player, by the way. O'Neill Cruz is their best player. He hasn't played at all this year. But I think Pittsburgh it just doesn't have the depth for a long 162-game season. Maybe they're turning the corner as a franchise, but I don't think they have the staying power for a long summer. I mean, it gets they were 10 games over 500 not too long ago. And even though they've won five straight, there's still only four games over 500, winning five in a row. So I don't think the Pirates have the staying power to kind of hang around this race. So that's two teams now you have questions about. The Miami Marlins have won three in a row. It's a good young team, the Marlins. They always are a good young team. They just, do they have the staying power? You know, when it starts to get hot and you play a lot of games, some of these young guys start to wear down a little bit. They're not used to the long summer. They're not used to the dog days of summer playing baseball games. It almost feel like they have no meaning to them. So can Pittsburgh, Miami, Arizona, do they have the staying power? So that's two teams that are in the wild card race right now. Pittsburgh and Miami feels like two spots up for grabs to me. And that puts you right back where you were a year ago. New York, San Diego, San Francisco, and Philadelphia. They were the four teams in September that were battling for the last wild card race, right? And who got in? It was Philadelphia. The Mets were the two. They pulled away, and Philadelphia outlasted San Francisco. San Diego was the one. So, really... It feels like it's going to be New York, San Francisco, San Diego, Philadelphia. Those are the established crew. San Diego, much like Philadelphia, everybody felt, I mean, look, they got better from last year to this year. They added more offense. They added more pitching. And they've been a disaster. They have the same exact record as Philadelphia does, 30, uh, 27 and 32. Those two teams you would have to think, have to turn the corner soon enough. But is there room for both of them? See, when I look at this race right now, I see two openings. I think Pittsburgh kind of fizzles. I think Miami kind of fizzles. And then there's those next four. New York right now is 30 and 30. San Francisco's 29 and 30. San Diego and Philly are both 27 and 32. I think there's four teams playing for two spots. If you can kind of hang around with that group right now, do you have enough staying power? And that's the question. Does Pittsburgh have the staying power? Does Arizona have the staying power? Because, look, if Arizona doesn't have the staying power, and right now I'm giving them the top wild card spot. Again, I'm saying there's two spots open because I'm giving Arizona one of them because they're 10 games over 500, but I don't even know that I believe in them. My point is, over the weekend, you saw that June changes things. June changes things in baseball. 
It's a little warmer out. The ball carries a little bit more. You start to kind of get a personality of the season. I think the Phillies' personality of the first two months of the baseball season was, this is kind of boring next to those October games. But we hung around. And June comes around. All right, now the season's starting here. Schwarber, a couple homers. Real Muto, a couple dongs. I think the big thing over the weekend for the Phillies, even though they played a bad team, sometimes bad teams are just what the doctor ordered. And if you can start to get that swing back, doesn't matter that you're facing a bad team. These are major leaguers. You just need to hear bat, hit ball, go far, make good contact, and that bang. Sometimes that sound just gets you back where you need to be. I thought it was a good weekend for the Phils for those reasons, that you had a lot of key players kind of get that feeling back a little bit. The game on Friday night, they were down. It's a very frustrating loss. Why? Because Zach Wheeler pitches that game. And Zach Wheeler did not do his job. You're the ace of this staff. You're playing the Nationals. Your team scored seven runs. Unfortunately, they were down seven to two. They came back, tie the game. How many times they come back, tie a game? And you're like, all right. And then the bullpen coughs one up. We talked about it Friday with Bob Wankel. Philly's bullpen has been one of the key positives about this team all season long. And unfortunately, on Friday night, they cough one up. That could have been a sweep, and we would have been feeling differently. But I'll tell you this. Friday night, Schwarber two hits. Right? Castellanos two homers. The offense felt better Friday night. I think if you get the offense clicking in the month of June, if you can start to get some more consistent pitching, Wheeler three and two-thirds, eight hits, seven runs against Washington, very frustrating because you know Wheeler's better than that. So Friday night, very frustrating. And then for Brogdon to come in that game after your team comes back, because look, Vasquez, Marte, and, and Hoffman, those three guys did their job. You go to Brogdon... Brogdon has been one of the more disappointing relievers. For three years now, I've been waiting for this guy. And then in that World Series, he had that moment. And you thought he's going to be eh, Buckus. Overall, positive weekend, I thought, for the Phillies' offense. Pitching, still a big question. Even though I thought Wheeler, completely disappointing. But I thought another positive step this weekend that we got to start looking at was... Ranger Suarez pitched for the second straight time, second straight outing that he had a positive outing. That is a huge positive for the Phillies, is that they got two straight good starts from Suarez. And in the game on Saturday, you know, you had essentially Strom, Vasquez, Marte, Soto, Dominguez, Kimbrell. Another bullpen game. Can't keep doing the bullpen game, but... It showed you again that the bullpen depth is there for the Phillies. So the start of June, did it start to change your perception of the Phillies at all? Let me know. 609-403-0973 on the text board. 609-403-0973. Was it just a hey, yawn weekend against the Nationals? Or was it a weekend that finally had some character.
that finally had some personality for this team. We start there. Today. Sports Fast Live, 97.3 ESPN. So did the Phillies turn the proverbial corner? Mike McGarry in 20 minutes, NBA Finals. Eagles lucked out again. I'll explain coming up a little bit later. Nick Nurse will put a bow on the hiring there. Jeff Mosher has football at four. Sound of the day. More Sports Bash coming up on 97.3 ESPN. Now, without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Bash on 97.3 ESPN. 2.30 Sports Bash, 97.3 ESPN. Mike Gill with you. I got, um, over the weekend, got some better vibes around the Phillies team. Look, I told you not to worry so much about the team. That wasn't going to be a fun season. But I'm not blind to see that this has been a bad baseball team so far. Has not been good. But the reason they haven't been good is because guys who have a good track record have not been good. Look, if we were talking about a team that hadn't been good and Aaron Nola had been a Cy Young candidate and Kyle Schwarber and Trey Turner have been hitting like MVPs, you got to start to wonder, what the heck's going on here? I think one of the key reasons why this team has kind of been mired in mediocrity, which is amazing that they've even been mediocre, is that you've got players who have good track records performing poorly. And in those situations, I got to go to the back of the bubblegum card. You know, I think Trey Turner has got to be the most disappointing player in baseball so far. Is he going to turn it around? You have to imagine that Trey Turner is not going to hit in the 230s all season long. He has been possibly the biggest bust, free agent bust, not only this season, in the last 10 years. I mean, you think about the money that he's signed for and think about it. Last season, we just kept waiting for Castellanos and waiting for Castellanos and waiting for Castellanos. And quite frankly, Castellanos never came around. Now, you're seeing a much different version of Nick Castellanos this year. You're still not getting the one that you got in Cincinnati where that man hit over 30 bombs for the Reds. But he is hitting over 310 right now. I mean, is this whole season going to be a bust for Trey Turner? Do we have to wait for him to have a whole season in Philadelphia, an off season, and then have his bust out year next year? Huh. Now, Trey Turner, if you look back at his career, we talk about Schwarber the month of June is generally when the Schwarman gets going. Trey Turner's best career months have been August and September. We have to wait till August, possibly, to see the best from Trey Turner. That could be a very interesting thing to see. Look, would you be willing to say, hey, this Trey Turner's been disappointing, but if he turns it on in August and September and helps this team go from middle of the pack and pull away, 
I think April, May, June, July will probably be forgotten. But we'll see. You remember last year, Kyle Schwarber hit 10 home runs in September and October. He hit 38 of his 46 home runs batting leadoff last year. So the fact that he had this weekend back in the leadoff spot might have been the thing that got Schwarber jump-started. The problem is I don't know that batting Trey Turner number four or number five is going to get him going. So we'll see what the Phillies do when that lineup comes out. 232 with five home runs this year. 232 for Trey Turner. It just totally, totally, totally not what you anticipated when you got a guy for over $300 million in free agency. It's definitely not what you anticipated, but I would also ask the question of, you know, we see that Schwarber and Real Muto are coming around. Is it fair to assume that Turner will also come around sooner than later? You know, maybe it's not literally August. We have to wait that long. But, you know, he did have a couple of hot spots, you know, earlier this year. So, you know, maybe. I don't remember them. Well, you don't remember them because we all have recency bias. You know? <laughs> well, I'm just saying, I might have recency bias, but if you're asking me to go back to some hot spots, you better produce them for me. I can't just let you say blindly that he's had some hot spots. I don't remember Trey Turner having one week where you're like, okay, he seems to be turning the corner here. I, I Maybe I missed him. I don't remember that at all. He has been bad, flat-out bad, consistently this year. For him to be hitting two thirty two is just completely unacceptable. The last seven days, Turner, 125. The last 14 days, 146. The last 28 days, 184. None of those stretches are any good. Now, maybe he had a good stretch in the month of April that I missed. But if I missed it, I'd like you to produce it for me because I'm not letting Trey Turner off the hook here. He has not had a hot streak of more than two days that I can recall all season long. I mean, quite frankly... Trey Turner has been, and again, I'm just throwing a general statement out there. He's got to be one of the worst free agent busts in the first two months of a season, particularly of all time, two months of the season now. That doesn't make a signing. I'm not ready to give up on Trey Turner based on two months, but I don't know where he has had a string of games of four, five, or six games in a row where you said, okay, he's starting to turn the corner. Think about this. Trey Turner at home, 23 games this year in Philadelphia. He's hitting 204 in those games. Now, on the road, he's hit 250. So maybe on the road, he's had a streak of games when it was a West Coast swing or something that while we were sleeping, we missed. Well, it was April 10th to April 21st. He was batting... Uh, 308 during that stretch. He had an on-base percentage of 370. These are good numbers. You know, and it was over 57, 57 plate appearances. I will say, in April and March, so the beginning of the season, This was the Marlins, the Reds, and the White Sox. He had 29 games in April and March, the two months combined, the last week of March when they opened the season, and then April. He did it 260 for the first month of the season. Since that first 29 games... In May, he hit 208, and in June so far, he's hitting 177. No, I would say if you go by his his rundown, it's basically since the middle of May to now, he has been a little Jekyll and Hyde. Like, he'll have a couple games where he has a couple hits, a couple games with, like, nothing, 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 one hit, nothing, one hit, one hit, nothing, one hit, like, just on down the line. Yeah, he has just not had a memorable stretch 
that I could remember. Now, you just gave me a little bit there. Um, the fact that he has five home runs, just not hitting with any power. The fact that he's only stolen eight bases this year means he's not uh, creating havoc on the bases. Why? Because he's not on the bases. He's not on base enough to <laughs> right. create havoc. Exactly. So he has been um, just a complete and utter disaster so far. According, Does that mean, I think, yeah. all season long that this is the Trey Turner that we should anticipate I can't go that far. I mean, look, it did. We we kept waiting for Castellanos last year, and it never ended up happening. I will say this: for Trey Turner, we talked about his best months. Well, in his career, he is far better in August, three twenty four, and September, three hundred one, than he is in any other month. July and June, he is two ninety nine which is better than he is in May and April. In April, he's 287. In May, he's 266. And then in June, he picks it back up, 299, 299 in July, 324 in August. So if we don't see him start to get something going in this month of June, I think it will be fair to wonder if you're going to get that 324 that you generally, which is his career average in 168 games of August. Yeah, part of the concern is his own base. He has not had a on-base percentage at 340 or higher since April 23rd, according to baseball reference. He actually was batting 300 for the majority of the month of April, but then April 25th on has been the nosedive. Yeah, he has not been very good uh, since really the be- the end of the first month of the season, and I think the Phillies are lucky to be where they're at right now. That said, I still feel that these things will turn more than I think they'll stay the same. And that's why I think, as I talked about in the first segment, that they will be in the mix with those other four teams for the three wild card spots. Because right now, I don't buy Pittsburgh. I don't buy uh, Miami. And I'm a little wishy-washy on Arizona. Arizona has very good pitching. I just don't know that they have the offense for a long summer to compete. 609-403-0973. 609-403-0973. couple text messages. Mike McGarry from the Press of Atlantic City. Uh, the calendar is now says June. We saw Schwarber get going. We saw Real Muto get going. Is he convinced that some things are about to turn for the Phils? That conversation is coming up next right here on the Sports Bash on 97.3 ESPN. Now, without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Sports Bash with Mike Gill on 97.3 ESPN. South Jersey's sports leader. 245, you know, it's a long season. We go through highs and lows. But the Phillies have been filled with lows. They just have had no entertaining moments. We finally got a day yesterday and a weekend. Real Muto, Schwarber, Castellanos continues to hit. Another good start from Ranger Suarez. Mike McGarry from the Press of Atlantic City see the Phillies finally turning the corner, or are we going to be in a malaise essentially all season long? You know, Vegas win total, Mike, was 88.5 before the season. It's now down to 80.5, which essentially is not a playoff team. Did you see a playoff team over the weekend finally? Uh, yes and no. Uh, 
you know, and, and again, I guess that's been the story of the Phillies season so far, inconsistent. I mean, yesterday was the recipe, right? I mean, this is a team that has not hit home runs. And for all of our talk about the starting pitching and guys batting averages and everything else, uh, the Phillies are a team that has to mash the ball to win in the regular season. And that means hit home runs. And they haven't done it this year. They started to do it this weekend. So, um, you know, it would be a good time for them to get on a little run here and give uh, their fans some hope. And they've got an opportunity with one of the worst teams in the American League coming into Citizens Bank Park for three games after you take the two of three from the Nationals. Are you one of these guys, Mike, that buys into, you know, hey, Kyle Schwarber, he turns things around in June and then he hits a couple of, you know, he has more home runs today than he does on this date a year ago. Do you buy into that, that, hey, some of these guys just need a little bit, you know, of the season to get under them before they start rolling? Yeah, again, yes and no, right? I mean, I don't think it's as simple as Kyle Schwaber seeing the calendar go to June 1st and he flips the switch, but there's no denying that he is a slow starter, and there is no denying that the old Charlie Manuel thing hitting weather that, you know, guys tend to hit better when it gets hotter out. Now the weather's starting to turn, especially the Northeast. You're getting better conditions to hit in, and so maybe that has something to do with it. But again, you know, if you look at the Phillies, I think you'll take a look at the home runs they hit yesterday, and you take a look at Ranger Suarez. His last two outings have been very good. Maybe that gives you some hope. On the negative side, you have, you know, Zach Wheeler and Aaron Nola continuing to kind of struggle, and that would give you, you know, uh, something to worry about if you're going to take the opposite side of this argument. Mike McGarry from the Press of Atlantic City. Mike, what? is your explanation so far for Trey Turner? I mean, he is in the 230s right now. You're talking about one of the premier hitters in the National League or baseball over the last, you know, five to seven years here. He's been dreadful. You know, we saw Schorber. We saw Real Muto. Castellanos has kind of got going. He has not had a moment, it feels like, all season. What is your reasoning uh, in your mind for Turner? And do you expect that to finally turn the corner at some point? Or is this going to be like Castellanos last year, where we just kept waiting all year for Castellanos and it never came? Yeah, not only, Mike, has he been bad at the plate, he's been bad in the field also. He has not played well defensively at shortstop. And again, I wrote uh, something last week in my must-win column that You know, I think Trey Turner is going to be okay. I think he's going to be probably worth the money that the Phillies have paid him. But we might have to all accept he's not going to be worth it this year because his numbers are so bad and we're so far into the season that he would have to perform like an MVP, which he has in the past, to even come close to getting to the back of his baseball card right at the end of the season. I compare Trey Turner's situation to what happened up in New York two years ago with Francisco Lindor. Another shortstop, the Mets traded for him, signed a $300 million deal, I think a $350 million deal, and just it never just clicked for him that season. He was great last year. He had over 100 RBIs. I think he has 15, 16 home runs. He's played well defensively this year. But his first year in New York, it just never clicked. He had a bad season. I think we might be headed for the same thing with Trey Turner. The days are coming off the calendar. Mikey's batting, like you said, 230. Get to, like, 320, he's going to have to hit what? You know, I can't do the math. I know it's pretty good. So, uh, you know, I think we just might have to accept 
that Trey Turner is just going to have a bad season this year. Yeah, I know uh, you wrote about it this weekend. Uh, Schwarber said we're not panicking, but there is a sense of urgency. They got swept by the Mets. They played better this weekend. But, you know, I think we all kind of maybe um, took for granted what Hoskins brought to this team, and they just do not have that right-handed presence. And I don't know that they're ever going to get that back this season, and that might be something that just constantly drags this team down all year long. Yeah, absolutely, unless uh, Drew Ellis is the natural, right? <laughs> Roy Hobbs showing up out of nowhere, and all of a sudden, you know, he's on his couch in Indianapolis, you know, three weeks ago, and, and yesterday's hitting, you know, a pair of home runs for the Phillies, so maybe that's another sign. But you're right, I think the, hot, the Hoskins thing, the lack of power from the right side has really hurt him. I think the, the poor pitching, you know, we worried about what would be the impact of those extra innings on the arms of Wheel and Nola and Suarez. You know, at the start of this season, the extra innings from the postseason last year, I don't think there's anybody now that can say that pitching into November didn't impact all three of those guys. They still have a chance to sort of straighten themselves out. The National League is very forgiving. It, it's bad this year. You're going to, you know, even if they try to get out of the wild card race, they're not going to fall out of the wild card race. They're going to be in the wild card race through the end of the season. It's just a matter of can they put some a streak together, yeah. and they need to do something. They need to do 5 of 7, 7 of 10, 8 of 11. You know, they need to do something here to put themselves in position to at least sort of make a move in August and September like they did last yeah, year. Yeah, I mean, they're four and a half back now. I think they were actually uh, deeper back at this point last year. We keep comparing to last year. Uh, it was a year ago that Rob Thompson, what is different about what Rob Thompson is he, you know, the, that he's not getting out of this team right now? I think it's he's the same guy. You know, I, I'm starting to think, Mike, that maybe – you know, Joe Girardi is sitting back down there in his home in Florida and saying, see, it, it wasn't me. You know, I, I think, you know, the, the Rob Thompson might just have been a victim of uh, or the benefactor is the better word of good timing. He becomes the manager and the team turns it on, uh, which they inevitably would have done no matter who the manager was last year. There's no doubt he brought a calmness to the, to the clubhouse. Uh, he helped settle things down. But maybe he was just – maybe this is just who the Phillies are, and he just got named the manager at the right time. Hmm. Uh, Mike McGarry for the Press of Atlantic City. Phil's tonight taking on uh, Detroit. So, of course, we'll keep an eye on that. Uh, lastly, Mike, uh, you mentioned the manager. The, the the lineup that came out Friday, Schwarber back to the top of the lineup. Turner was more in the middle of the lineup. What do you think of the configuration? You know, we just talked about Turner trying to get him going. We all thought, hey, this guy at the top of the order, but they go Schwarber back to the top, Turner more so in the middle. What do you think of that configuration? Well, I mean, it worked over the weekend, and I liked it. You had to do something. Uh, you know, I was up there in New York on Thursday uh, after they lost that day game to the Mets, got swept by the Mets, and and uh, we asked manager Rob Thompson if he was thinking about lineup changes, and he said he was. Uh, you know, I liked it. You couldn't have the Stott-Turner combination at the top of the order. They weren't getting on base enough. So you drop Turner in the order. Maybe that takes a little bit of pressure off of him. And you put Schwaber at the top of the order where he likes to hit, hoping that you catch some lightning in a bottle, some June magic in the bottle. He feels comfortable there, and maybe you did that with the way he hit the ball yesterday. So I liked it. You had to do something. You couldn't keep trotting that same lineup out all the time. And, uh, you know, putting guys in spots where they've had success, which Schwaber has, I like. And dropping Turner I liked because – 
he just couldn't be hit second in the order with the way he's been producing this year. Mike McGarry, I would imagine uh, there is a uh, championship game that you are on your way to. Correct. I'm headed up to Middletown North right now. Mainland Regional really in the midst. Talk about your, you know, we think the Phillies had an improbable postseason run last October. How about the Mustangs? Nine and thirteen when the postseason began. Well, now they're thirteen and thirteen in South Jersey Group Three champions. They'll be playing Middletown North in a state Group Three semifinal, and we'll also have coverage of Buna Regional playing at Point Pleasant Beach in a Group One uh, semifinal. Buna, a South Jersey champion too. And Mike, it's like 2014 all over again. Local fans might remember back then. Buna and uh, Mainland won state baseball championships. Nine years later, they're trying to do it again, and they'll play in state semifinals today. Very cool, and Mike will have coverage of that at PressOfAtlanticCity.com, and he'll be back on Wednesday uh, see if the Phillies can sweep this Tigers team uh, and get themselves moving in the wild card race. Four and a half back starting on this Monday. Michael, thanks, buddy. All right, Mike, we'll see you down the road. Thanks. All right, Mike McGarry from the Press of Atlantic City here on the Sports Bass live on 97.3 ESPN. And don't forget to download the 97.3 ESPN free mobile app right now over at 97.3ESPN.com. More on the Phillies, Flyers, Sixers, Eagles. And speaking of the Flyers, by the way, I don't know if you saw this over the weekend. A little fly- Flyers are making a lot of news. I actually reached out to our Flyers insider, Kevin Durso, who's on vacation. We're going to try to get him on maybe Wednesday. Or Thursday, you know, they're firing a bunch of people, a lot of shakeup in the Flyers front office. Uh, we'll get you ready for the Flyers offseason, but Flyers fans, they're going to be playing in another outdoor game. They will be playing in the stadium series against the Devils. That will be at MetLife Stadium sometime in February. I think it's February 17th or 18th. You know the date? I forget the other man, but they're doing back-to-back games. Yeah, it's Flyers, Devils, and Rangers Islanders. Right. How do you feel about the outdoor game? I like the outdoor game. I think it's a cool little novelty. I don't think they should overdo it, though. Like, they did the one on New Year's Day. Right. was kind of their thing. The problem with that is the college football and then the NFL. Right. Because the way the calendar fell on, like, Sundays and Saturdays. I feel like February is a better slot. Well, I like the outdoor game if it's just them kind of having it. And I went to the Flyers game at Citizens Bank Park when they played the Rangers. I forget what year that was, but I will not be going to MetLife Stadium. Flyers, though, outdoor game 2024. This is the Sports Bash with Mike Gill on 97.3 ESPN. Now, live inside the Matt Black Kia Studios, here's Mike Gill. 301 on the Sports Bash. Mike Gill with you till 6. I want to get in some NBA Finals. Um, make or miss leak, you think? The Heat hit 49% from three last night. Who won the game? The team that hit 49% from three. Pretty simple. There's your breakdown. <laughs> I mean, this Heat team has been unbelievable. Did you know this? I got this for you. All right? The Miami Heat. We're 44 and 38 in the regular season. Okay? They played 82 games. Did you know they were the worst offensive team in the entire NBA? Right? They were the worst team offensively, worst offensive efficiency in the NBA for the entire season. Think about this. 
They scored less points per game this season on average than the Houston Rockets. They scored less points per game this season on average than the Detroit Pistons. They were essentially the, not essentially, they were the worst offensive team in the entire league. You talk about a make or miss league. They didn't make during the regular season and they were about a 500 team. They can't miss in the playoffs and they're on the verge of winning an NBA championship potentially. You talk about make or miss, you hit 49% of your threes. Hello. If the Detroit Pistons came out and hit 49% of their threes, I got news for you. <laughs> they would have a shot to win an NBA championship. Anybody who's going to hit 48% of their threes, 49%, they were 48.6, round that up to 49%. It is just unbelievable the hot streak that they're on. It is unbelievable that this is actually happening right now. This is the eighth seed. We talked about this before. If you have a situation where... <laughs> you're just going to shoot the lights out like this over a stretch. You might get through a series like this. They went through the first round and shot the lights out, the second round and shot the lights out, the championship round and shot the lights out, and last night they did it again. Look, they overcame a 15-point deficit last night. They're on the road. They're in Denver. Everybody's talking about the altitude. They can't win the series. Denver hadn't lost a game, if memory serves me. I don't think they lost a game at home in these playoffs. They're up 15 in the game. And somehow Denver loses that game last night. It is the Heat's seventh. Think about this, guys. It is the Heat's seventh double-digit comeback win in these playoffs. They've been down double digits seven times and came back to win. The Heat were an eight-point underdog in the game last night. They won the game for the tenth time in these playoffs when they were the underdog. It is the 28th time this year that Miami has won by five points or fewer. So they're winning close games. They're down double digits. They're coming back. They are winning in just about every single way that you can figure out to make it up. Make up a scenario, they have done it. Make out a way that they would win the game, they have done it. They have won more games by five or fewer points than any team in NBA history other than the 1980 Philadelphia 76ers. It is incredible what this team is doing right now. It is absolutely mind-boggling to me. You know, last night, we're going through the back and forth, text messages with my buddies, bang, 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 this, that, the other. And everybody wants to say, this is why they won, and this is that, and da, da, da. 49% from three. There's your answer. They were better from three-point range in game two than they were in game one. Simple. In game one of the NBA Finals, they did not shoot the ball very well. They were 13 of 39 in game one, 33% and loser. Well, 17 of 35, 49%, ding, 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 winner. 
Is it that simple? I mean, listen, there's a couple things that I take from this game. Bam Adebayo is – Jokic is awful defensively. He stinks defensively, and they're going right at him. We talk so much about Jokic and Bead and Bead, Jokic. Jokic is a better offensive player. He just has more tricks in the toolbox. But he stinks on defense, and they're going after him. Bam Adebayo is not a great offensive player. He is an energy guy. He's one of those guys that, you know, they don't rely on him for a lot of offense, even though he scores for them, if that makes it. I mean, he doesn't have, a like, a great repertoire, Adebayo. But they're giving him the ball and letting him back Jokic into the paint because he stinks defensively. And I got to be honest, they're not great defensive team Denver on the perimeter either. So they don't defend the three very well. And they have no paint presence. It's a team that you're looking at like this was a year. Like this Denver team is good. And I like this Denver team. I love Murray. I love Porter. I'm a big Jokic fan, but it's not a team that is, like, unbeatable. And you're seeing it right now because they don't have a paint presence. They really struggle on the perimeters. And when you get that lineup going, I mean, that 10-point stretch for Duncan Robinson turned the whole game around, right? I mean, I'm watching this game, and I'm thinking, well, you got Struess who hit no threes in game one. What was he, 0 for 9? He was over, yeah. And last night he's four for ten. He goes forty percent from three point range. Think about the difference for them that that makes. And they made the switch in the lineup. They went with Love. I thought that gave him a little bit more toughness, a little bit more savviness, if you will. He only played like twenty minutes. He did have ten rebounds though. Well, Love being out there neutralized one of Denver's greatest assets, which is is Denver an elite defensive team? No, but. Their two best defenders who are part of that team, Aaron Gordon might be one of the best weak side defenders in the league, and Bruce Brown is one of the best help defenders in the league. When you put a guy like Kevin Love out there, what you're doing is is you're creating a little chaos for them defensively because their lineup is made to deal with teams like the Lakers and the Suns and the Warriors. They're not dealt to deal with a team that has a for lack of a better term, a more classic power forward in Kevin Love, who happens to be a stretch four, who you throw him in the post, and he's looking at Jokic and says, hey, man, I don't care if you score. You know why? Because you're not passing the ball to the other guys to get threes. Yeah, um, Jokic had 41 last night. He had four assists. I know Ramona Shelbourne asked the question after that she got basically uh, shot down big time by Spolster. by Spolster. He said that's an untrained eye making that observation. So why would he say that? I mean, I don't know. Is he trying to – does well, he I have think, a beef with with, with Ramona Shelbourne? Is he – I, I don't know. I don't know the answer. I thought that was – because Spolster is thought to be this classy guy and that, you know – and everybody has a lot of respect for him, but I thought the way he answered that question was kind of low rent. Yeah, it was not cool. It was look, it's a valid question because Jokic's entire it's a very valid question, by the way. Jokic's entire game is built on the fact that he is arguably one of the most well-rounded offensive weapons in the league. You could argue he may be the most well-rounded offensive weapon. Well, in the league. In case in point, last possession before the final one of the game. They get the offensive rebound. Jokic comes down with it, down on the left block, and he has the peripheral vision to see Murray on the opposite wing. Opposite wing, I right. mean, that is just an unbelievably savvy play, which that is where a guy like Jokic differs from a guy like Embiid. I don't know that Embiid gets the offensive board and then calmly 
repositions himself and fires a fastball over to Murray. Right. In the, you know, for three. Jokic's basketball IQ is legitimately very good. So last night was very uncharacteristic for him to have more turnovers than assists. And I think that's why it was a valid question. But again, you got to give Miami credit because they threw the changeup. They threw the screwball. They threw the pitch at them that they didn't know what to do with. And as the game progressed on, as you said, Miami was just bombs away from three-point land. And Denver just didn't seem to have an answer. That, to me, like, look, I'm a hoop head. I love basketball. I love watching. I'm into these NBA finals. But that, to me, is the most deflating part about this. It is just basically who shoots the ball better. The game is so unentertaining sometimes. It is just firing threes away. Duncan Robinson, though, he outscored the Nuggets by himself 10-2. to There was 11 minutes and 40 seconds left in the game, down to about 9.45. And he outscores the whole team by himself 10-2. to And when that stretch started, Miami's down five. At the end, they go up three, and now the Nuggets are trying to get back in the game basically from a guy who has been a nothing burger all season long for them. It's just an amazing story, this Heat team, the way that they figure out ways to win, but it is a lot predicated on them shooting the ball. I mean, look, I go back to Struess and Vincent, okay? These are two guys in game one. They combined for 19, five of 19 from three, and by the way, all five, uh, I, Struce didn't hit any in the first game. Right, it was Gabe Vincent who hit them all. Game two, they combined for 37 points. They go 8 for 15 from three-point range. They had open field goal attempts in game one, 4 for 15. Last night, 8 of 12. I mean, it is essentially, you converted in game two, you did not, like... They had 15 open looks in the first game and only made four of them. Well, it goes back to what Barkley was saying in the last round about the Boston Celtics, how he can't stand them because Boston is a team that, and I might not be getting the stat exactly right, but I believe they were, what, 38-2 and when they shot 40% or better this year? And they were under five hundred when they didn't. And Barkley was saying, it's ridiculous. This team, all they're doing is chucking it from three, and they never take it to the basket. Mm -hmm. And so you have Miami Heat that, Basically beat the Celtics because for four games, they shot better than Boston. Look, and Jokic, now we're seeing it last night where it's Denver basically did not shoot as well as Miami. That's what it comes down to, and that's what it comes down to mostly in these games. So now we're at the point. I talked about this a couple weeks ago. Um, it's not who has home court advantage. It is who shoots the ball better, Right. Absolutely. Home court advantage over the last couple of years has been minimized because, in my opinion, back in the day, for instance, Team 1 was significantly more talented than Team 8. Team 2 was significantly more talented than Team 7. 3, more talented than 6. 4, slightly more than 5. The level of talent is shrinking. In terms of two verse seven, three verse six, one verse eight, you are seeing the gap close a little bit more, which means seven can go on the road and win a game. You're seeing it now. Eight is going on the road and beating one. And it is basically, I don't want to say erasing home court advantage, but you go into games now at home court 
where you don't feel that that's an automatic win because you're in the other team's building. Yeah, the only team that was successful this postseason at home consistently was Denver until last night. Denver was undefeated at home until last night's game. They were the only team. Now, you could argue they might have the the most intangible home court advantage in the league because they're at high altitude and the rest of the league isn't. So that's something that you can't. You can't ever take away from them, right? Like, there's always going to be games where they're in, they're more prepared for that altitude than other team is. Yeah, the Heat basically decided that Jokic, you know, you're going to score. He averaged 41 points uh, in losses, second most in a single postseason in NBA history. So when they lose, teams are saying, Jokic, you score on us, and we'll, you know, not let the other guys, you know, basically let him get his and everybody else. We're not going to let you get looks. Murray tried to bring him back. I mean, that fourth quarter, he was unbelievable late in that game. But when push came to shove, he had the look. People talking about the timeout. Should they have taken a timeout? Murray had a great look. The he guy was look. on fire. He got an open look. He missed it. He had the shot to tie it, and he didn't make it. It's one of these things. I can't stand the Monday morning quarterbacking on the coach should have taken a timeout or he shouldn't have taken a timeout. He had an open look. If you were going to design a play, what were you going to try to get him? An open look. I mean, that was certainly a better look than Jordan Poole had a couple rounds ago with people criticized. Well, you're saying he should have called a timeout. And if, you know, Jalen Rose after the game, oh, if he had it to do it again, he would have taken a timeout. What, to get him a better look? He got an open look from straight on the money. He got the look. The he issue got wasn't. the look. And he just didn't make it. The conversation about, like, well, if you set up the play, now you're giving Spolster a chance to set up his play. Exactly. Now Spolster will have a better defensive answer. Yeah, no, I, I don't have any problem with Michael Malone not taking a timeout in that spot. The timeout's Especially overrated. when you had Murray cooking. I mean, he was blistering hot in the final three and a half minutes of that game, Murray single-handedly, I mean, hit a three from like 29 feet out on the left wing on the one side. He comes down, he hits the one on the offensive board from Jokic, bang, hits another three. I mean, Murray hits the three late in that game. There's four seconds left. He gets the look. Yeah. He missed it. I mean, what better look are you trying to get for him? He's straight on the money at the top of the key. Your best shooter, that's the shot you want. And that's why yeah, I say, it, you know, not to oversimplify things, but it goes back to the question I was asking you last week, Mike, about how, you know, you look at Jokic and you see the talent he has around him. And you look at the fact that he never got to NBA Finals without Murray, without Gordon, without Porter Jr., without Bruce Brown, without Catavius Caldwell-Pope. So you see now he has nine consecutive losses when he has less than five assists in a game. Mm. So... At some point, we just have to admit that, you know what? Maybe the superstar is not as important as the surrounding cast. Well, I mean, listen, Murray, here's what I'll say about that. Murray, to me, is not recognized as a quote-unquote superstar. But he is an all-star at a high level. You have a guy, a, 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 a you know, he's budding into that next-level player in these players. Look, in game one, though, Murray, he scored 21 points when Joker was on the floor compared to five points when he was off the floor. In game two, he only had 10 points when Joker was on the floor, eight points when he was off the floor. So they did a great job with both those guys. They played well off of each other. You could argue that Murray was made to play with Jokic. But the still, you still need well, I say, both. What the, we, taught, we played that Monica McNutt audio the other day. What's the biggest thing that Embiid needs? Oh, right, yeah. He needs, he needs a, a real point guard. And and I don't know that Murray is a quote-unquote real point guard, 
but he can score the basketball, but he can also control the game. He's an impactful player that allows Jokic to do what he does. But again, it gets back to my thing, which is we don't value the supporting cast around these guys. Like, for example, this this idea that Monty Williams lost the series for the Suns. No, the Suns traded half their team to get Kevin Durant, and they had nothing around Durant and Booker when CP3 went down. Or like this stupid rumor now that Kyrie is trying to get LeBron to come to Dallas. Yeah, Kyrie, LeBron, and Luka, and they might as well hire you and me, Mike, to play next to them because they can't afford anybody else. Well, I'm on the IR right now because I raked my front lawn yesterday and my back kind of hurts, so I don't think I can. And then I hit 575 ground balls last night, so (laughs) I am not available for Game 3 on Wednesday night. (laughs) I got six fouls to use. How's that? Go ahead. Uh, I got some text messages coming in. 609-403-0973. I think whoever shoots better over these last five games is going to win. Am I going out on a limb? No, not at all. <laughs> I mean, I don't think there was anything the Heat did last there night. There is no truer statement that has been made today than what you just made. You know, you talk about adjustments. And, and look, Miami, I talk about the coach's impact. To me, the coach's impact much more on off days than in-game. Well, the, the impact, they made the, the, the change. They went to love last night, and I thought that impacted the game a little bit. Somebody told me, I said, well, they're now by 15. How much did it impact the game? My buddy's arguing with me. That moved the, the love. I said, they're down 15. You know what got him back in it? Duncan Robinson went on a 10-2 run. Duncan Robinson, baby. Tyler Herm, Hero might be back for game three there. And that would be interesting to see how they incorporate him. Yeah, who loses minutes in that situation? I got text messages coming in, 609-403-0973. Plus, coming up, the Eagles lucked out again. Sports Pass Live, 97.3 ESPN. Now, back to... Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants. They all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. More Sports Bash with Mike Gill on 97.3 ESPN. South Jersey's sports leader. All right, Philly's lineup is out. It's brought to you by Clark's Moving and Storage. Clark's Moving and Storage. My guys, of course, they move me. They can move you as well. Rio Grande, the moving season. If you're looking for that next big move, Clark's Moving and Storage. Philly's lineup, I actually uh, almost nailed it uh, during the break there. Uh, They do have one little change that I got wrong. I had Schwarber, Castellanos, Harper, Turner, Romuto, Stott, Ellis, Marsh, Sosa. I think that's what I had, yeah. I had Schwarber, Castellanos, Harper, Turner, Romuto, Stott, Ellis, Marsh, Sosa. They actually don't have Marsh in the lineup tonight. So Guthrie is playing center. And is he batting ninth? And Sosa is hitting eighth. So the lineup tonight, Schwarber in left, Castellanos in right. Harper the DH, Turner hitting four, Realmuto's catching, Stott, Ellis at first, Sosa at third, Guthrie in center, and Nola is the pitcher. Uh, Guthrie's in center because there is a left-handed pitcher, Wentz tonight, 
for Detroit. So no Marsh in the lineup tonight. Not a fan. Mart, uh, Wentz has a over 7 ERA. Not Carson Wentz. Uh, the Tigers pitcher Wentz has over 7 ERA. And this year, Marsh is almost a series X slugging percentage against lefties and righties. He has two of his five home runs this year against lefties and seven of his 25 RBIs against lefties. Now, he does have a 233 batting average, so I understand that the theory is he's batting worse. But the guy's got a 7 ERA. I mean, let him play. Yeah, this would be the kind of lefty that you would say, hey, let me see if my lefty can, you know, hit against this lefty. Um, I don't know what Marsh is like, how many days in a row he has played. Maybe this is a scheduled day off for him, something to that extent. You got to keep all this stuff in mind. Right. Is sometimes they have these things mapped out in advance. How many straight days has Marsh played? And he got a lefty today. Um, they do not have a pitcher listed for tomorrow, Detroit. Um, Are you available tomorrow? Nope. I told you I'm out till at least Thursday. I oh, hit too man. many ground balls last on, night man. and yard work. Come on, we need you for one inning tomorrow. Come nope, on. Not happening. Um Nola tonight, Walker Wheeler. This has to be a sweep. You gotta get a sweep here. And uh, I like the lineup tonight at the top. I'll tell you why. A couple things here. They got Schwarber back in the one hole. And, you know, obviously they they done that on Friday. He started to Castellanos Harper. I like Turner in the four hole today. Uh, with Real Muto behind him because Real Muto started to turn the corner maybe. And maybe now people will say, hey, Real Muto's hot. Let's go after Turner. And that's your way you get Turner going. So I like the concept of getting Turner in the four hole. They don't have a four hole hitter. Like right. people are like, why would you put Turner in the four hole? Who are you going to put there? Because you don't have a well, natural Real Muto person. hit a home run yesterday. Okay. Is Real Muto a four hole? No. No. So have the guy who's hot right now over the last couple of days hit behind the guy who's not so the guy who's not can maybe start to get some pitches. And that's the way you get him going is, hey, we don't want to face Real Muto. He's the hot bat right now. So let's go after Turner, and maybe that gets Turner going. So it's a good way to try to kickstart Turner because you got Real Muto behind him. Now, they had Real Muto hitting behind him the last couple of days. Now, today they just moved them all up a little bit. Remember, Bohm is not here either. So there's another right-handed bat that's not in this lineup. So now you have Ellis in that one hole in the uh, first base spot today. He had two homers the other day. You got Ellis Sosa Guthrie hitting seven eight nine. It's just, you know, you're, you're saying, hey, we need some production at the top of the lineup. But I like the concept that the Phillies go with Turner in the four spot with Real Muto behind them because Real Muto had a good weekend. So let's try to go after Turner because Real Muto is hot right now. And maybe you get Turner moving as well. Now you got Schwarber, Castellanos, Harper, Turner, and Romuto. If you can get those five guys all kind of cooking at the same time, that's how you get a little streak going. Yeah, and don't forget, you know, Castellanos in part is behind Schwarber because Castellanos is actually one of the league leaders in batting average. Well, and, somebody's got to hit in the two-hole right now that isn't Turner because Turner's just struggling no, so much. No, what I'm much. saying is that Castellanos also functions as protection for Schwarber because he is a, he's actually hitting well this year. Yeah, but I'm saying, like, you, there's no other option in the two-hole right now. You, 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 Castellanos has to hit in that spot. I mean, you could put Real Muto there and put Castellanos behind Turner. I guess so, but Real Muto, I, I mean, the other option is Stott, but the problem is then you have three lefties in a row and there's a lefty pitching. Mm -hmm. So the fact that Turner has been struggling so much um, is is the problem here because he should be hitting one or two. He's been struggling so much that now you've moved him down. Here's the thing. Somebody has to hit in that spot. You have to 
you have to sometimes go off the bubblegum card, right? You have to go off the baseball card. Turner is struggling. That doesn't mean you put him in the nine hole. You don't hit him seven. Right. You know, at some point, you have to imagine that he is going to come around. Now becomes the game of when is that moment that he gets going? Like, you could you could hit him six because of his output right now, but that's not helping him out either. You know, because he has nobody hitting behind him. You've got a situation tonight. I, I like the fact because you're not you, you, right now. You can't have Turner hitting in that two spot. Now, I would have taken a chance with Turner back at the leadoff spot, but unfortunately, Schwarber needed to get going too. And the last two games, putting him in the leadoff spot now. Remember, Schwarber hit four games in the leadoff spot two, three weeks ago and went 0 for 10 or whatever it was. So it's no guarantee that all of a sudden Schwarber is dialed in, but he looked a lot better this weekend. But I think Turner hitting them that four hole was a smart move tonight because of Real Muto's weekend. The fact that Real Muto had a good weekend, now maybe Detroit says, hey, you got a hot bat here. Let's go after Turner. He's struggling, and maybe that's your way to get Turner jump-started. So I like the lineup tonight. Schwarber, Castellanos, Harper, Turner, Real Muto, Stott, Ellis, Sosa, Guthrie. It's the exact lineup that I kind of guessed before the lineup came out, except for I had Marsh in my lineup. I figured, as you said, with Wentz, a lefty, but not a really good lefty, that they would have had Marsh in the lineup tonight, but they're giving him the day off. So, yeah, that's my I only digress disagreement. a little bit. Yeah, keep this in mind too. Their opinion of Nola is obviously a good opinion. They don't look at Nola as this struggling guy. So sometimes when you have your best pitcher on the mound, you can sacrifice a little offense because you have trust that your pitcher will pitch a good game. You know what I mean? Sure. So, hey, we got Nola pitching. Let's try to sneak Guthrie out there. Makes sense. It's just a concept of, hey, we have one of our top two going tonight. So we have a lefty-lefty. And let's see uh, if we can sneak a game and sneak a win with Marsh on the bench today and have him kind of sit a day out. Now, Marsh, again, I, I don't know how many straight days he's played or anything to that extent. You know, what, what, what the situation is. Maybe he just had a planned day off here. Again, they don't have a pitcher listed for tomorrow. Um, the pitcher for them on Wednesday is a right-handed pitcher. And then you go into that Dodgers series, which is interesting, because Friday, neither the Dodgers or the Phillies have a pitcher listed for Friday night. But your better pitchers are pitching in this series right here, Nola, Walker, Wheeler. You should be able – this should be a series where it's disappointing if they don't get a sweep. Marsh had played 11 games in a row, but we should caveat that with one of the, in the middle there, the whole team had a day off on Memorial Day. So he technically only played six days in a row. <laughs> uh, Mike, hard to believe that Castellanos will be the Phillies' only representative in the All-Star game this season. Hard to believe how bad Turner and Wheeler have been. Yeah, the Castellanos thing. I know a lot of people were down on Castellanos last year. Listen, Castellanos was dreadful last year, but the guy was unbelievable the year before in Cincinnati. To act like he, like people just say he stinks. And then your generalization is he stinks. He was unbelievable. Like, can you imagine? Think about this. The Phillies went to the World Series last year, right? They went to the freaking World Series last year. 
with Nick Castellanos essentially doing nothing for them the entire season. He gave them – I just talked about earlier in the show how Trey Turner has essentially not had one memorable stretch of games all season long. Like, that was Castellanos last year. He essentially had not one memorable stretch of baseball the entire season. Go to the year before – where Nick Castellanos, think about this. This is a guy that in 2021, we're not talking about five years ago. We're not talking about eight years ago. We're talking about not last season, the season before. The guy hit 309 with 34 home runs and 100 RBI. I mean, those numbers are ridiculous. And he was nowhere close to those numbers. Castellanos hit 13 home runs last year. 13! He had 309 the year before. Last year he had 263. He wasn't even in the same ballpark. So Castellanos really had an almost MVP type of season in 2021. So it should not be a surprise as the text message that he's the representative for the Phillies this season. Castellanos was a absolute beast in 2021. Last year was more of the outlier for him. Now, Hard to believe how bad Turner is. That I would agree with. Trey Turner being this bad has to be one of the most unpredictable things that you can think of. Castellanos suffers from the same problem that Turner is this year he had last year. Because Castellanos had a stretch from the when they returned from the All-Star game through August where he was batting three oh one with a four fifty five slug percentage, five homers, fifteen RBI. But again, like Turner, nobody knows it happened because it happened when other things were going on. Like Turner had a stretch in April this year, but between the Sixers and the postseason, and every day we talked about who the Eagles are going to draft for about three weeks in April. Well, what happened with Cassiano's last year? Every day we open the show, be like, Eagles are in training camp. So the problem is that Cassiano's did have a stretch last year, but nobody remembers it because all we did was talk about Eagles every day. Trey Turner is hitting two thirty two. These are Trey Turner's batting averages through his career. 232 is where he's at right now. Right. So to go back to the text message, how surprising this is. 298, 338, 322, 335, 298, 271, 284, 342. They are the batting averages of Trey Turner. He isn't within... His worst year in in, in uh, 271 he hit in 2018. He is 40 points below his previous worst. So something is not going on right. And I just can't. I'm watching him, and I just see a guy who's completely lost out there right now. Yeah, if you take the last just the last seven years, he's batting on average 303 <laughs> over those seven years. I like this one. Mike, is it a sneaker or spike day for Marsh? You were listening to uh, the David, David Sampson, Sampson conversation. Yeah. I would imagine Marsh is on a spike day. Because, I would assume. Because Guthrie is not one of these guys that, you know, you're like, hey, he he's going to play the whole day. Like, if there's a right-handed pitcher that comes in late in the game and you need a little left-handed pop, you might go to Marsh. So I think this would be – I think the only guys that get the full day off is your stars. Yeah, guys like Harper and Romuto, for example. I can see them being told it's a sneaker day. Yeah. More so than a guy like Marsh. I like that. that that's good paying attention out of you. Six zero nine four zero three zero nine seven three. Couple more text messages. 
Uh, let's get to uh, Mike. What the Heat are doing shouldn't be a huge surprise. This team was a shot away from making the finals last year. Made it uh, three years ago in the bubble. It's the same team pretty much. It's made three playoff runs. Jimmy Butler is that guy. He's a leader and wills his team. Yeah, I mean, it's not a huge surprise. They had a lot of injuries this year. I talked about that before. They were 40 and 38 in part because they had so many injuries, but also in part because they were not a very good shooting team. They, this is a team that is hitting at a, I have to imagine they are shooting at like a historic pace right now. They are hitting at a very high level. And as you said, they, but they were injured most of the year. They were the second most injured team in the NBA this year. So it's a, it's a, it's a, blatant example of how the regular season didn't tell the story of a team once they got to the postseason. And by the way, they're playing in the postseason. No Victor Oladipo, no Tyler Hero, who may come back for Game 3. So you could argue that the Miami Heat aren't even the best version of themselves right now in the NBA Finals. And let's be realistic. Yes, Jimmy Butler is a superstar. But Jimmy Butler has, as you mentioned, Mike, Struess, Vincent, Duncan Robinson and company all nailing bombs from three-point land, which certainly helps a lot because it's not like Jimmy Butler is going out there and scoring all the points last night. No, not at all. I mean, you didn't have to get a Jimmy Butler, you know, 32-point game for them to win that game last night. And that, you know, we talked about Struess. Four of ten from three. I mean, he hits 40% of his threes last night. I mean, the other night he was 0 for 10. Right. You, you just can't account for that. Um, it was a balanced attack. Butler 21. Bam. See, Bam getting the 21 is where the difference is, is, is for the Heat, too, because I know Bam is an all, quote unquote, all star. Um, you know, he does average like 20 points a game, but he generally gets them as an energy player. He's yeah, not a guy he, who's. He's not a 20-point guy because he's a, a three-point shooter or because he's some, got some great post moves or something. He's a he's a 20-point guy because he's down there getting offensive rebounds and scoring, pick and roll the basket for a dunk, stuff Vincent, like that. Vincent uh, at 23 last night. He led the team. 23 from Gabe Vincent. Sports Fast Live, 97.3 ESPN. Duncan Robinson had 10 points in 17 minutes. He had 10 points in a stretch of like three minutes. These are things you just can't account for. But in the end, 17 to 35, you're going to win. You're going to win. And during the course of the regular season, they weren't 17 to 35 very very often. 341 Sports Pass coming up. More text messages, 609-403-0973. But when we come back, the Eagles lucked out again. I'll explain that next on the Sports Bash on 97.3 ESPN. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus. You can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. A sports bash on 97.3 ESPN. 346 Sports Bash, 97.3 ESPN. Uh, a couple text messages. Cole from LBI. Mike, Trey Turner was a late bloomer who strung together two great seasons at age 28 and 29. 
Before COVID, he was a high average speed guy that could get you about 15 homers a season. Yeah, that's what we're asking for, though, Cole. A high average speed guy. I don't need him to hit 30 home runs. No one's asking for that guy. I'm looking for the guy who hit three 300 with 15 home runs and stole 20 bases. Yeah, if you spent seven years hitting 303, I think the Phillies would be more than happy to have that guy right now. Yeah, I'm not looking for a guy to hit 35 home runs, Trey Turner. No, I'm looking for a guy. What I was hoping for for Trey Turner is a guy that hits 300, has about, you know. 20 steals. Well, yeah, tw- maybe more than that with the new rules. 30 steals, but gets me, you know, anywhere from 15 to 18 home runs. I don't think people were being, uh, maybe they were, uh, but to me, Turner, where he's most disappointing, look, this guy led the league in batting average. He led the league in hitting uh, 328 in 2021. He had 335 in 2020. Now, I know that was the COVID season where they only played 59 games, but he had 298. He had 284. Right now, he's not close to that. If he was hitting 284 right now, you go back to his 2017 season. Now, you could ask the question, is he worth 300 million? And I think that's a fair question. I think the Phillies overpaid for the guy. No question about it. But they set the deal up in a way that they get him long term. They're not paying him as much up. Yada, yada, all that good stuff. But in 2018, all right, in 2018 with Washington, he played in every single game. He had 43 stolen bases. He had a 344 on base percentage. He had 19 home runs. He had 271. That's not a $300 million player by any stretch of the imagination. There's no question I think they overpaid the guy based on his last two seasons. But you're not getting anywhere close to 271, 19 homers, 43 steals. That's a guy right there that I think the Phillies would be winning more games with right now. The season before, he had 284 with 46 stolen bases. They need the speed at the top of the lineup with the guys they have hitting behind him. The whole concept is him hitting leadoff or number two, which is where he's kind of thrived in his career in the past. He's on base. You got Castellanos and Harper and Schwarber and Real Muto. And, of course, Hoskins isn't here hitting behind him. And you use that speed to score a bunch of runs. Well, that's not happening. He's not getting on base at the same club. You know, his on-base percentage for his career is three fifty. His on-base percentage this year is two seventy six. I mean, by accident, you can get on base 27% of the time. My gosh, if you just didn't swing the bat, you'd get walked 27% of the time. He's not even getting close. So I don't know that Trey Turner, what you would say, is a late bloomer. I think he is what he is. He had two really big seasons that got him that contract. But Trey Turner was a guy that... You know, he finished number two in the rookie of the year. He came onto the scene that first year, hit 342 in his first season in Washington. Then he gets hurt his second season in Washington when he was hitting 284. I said he hit 284 with 46 stolen bases. He only played in 98 games that year. So you had a guy that if he played the rest of the, you know, the rest, the 60 other games, he could have had probably 15 home runs and maybe 50 or 60 stolen bases that year. That's a pretty big season for a guy at the top of your lineup. Now, the numbers that he had last year in L.A., he had 100 RBI in that offense, 21 home run, 27 stolen bases at 298. You're not getting anything close to that right now. But, again, I think the the the, the contract they gave him is not – um. Not conducive in terms of what kind of output he's had in his career. 
Correct. So, Sports Bash Live 97.3 ESPN. Uh, Mike, why would they have Schwarber hitting leadoff? I'd rather have him hit a grand slam in the first inning than a solo shot. Here's the problem. You need to have three guys on base for him to hit a grand slam. That doesn't happen. Schwarber hitting leadoff. I don't remember, but did they go to the World Series last year with Schwarber hitting leadoff? That is correct. I don't understand how people don't recognize that. Schwarber has hit most of his career as a leadoff hitter. Yeah, people act like the Phillies are doing something that no other team has done. I feel like the Phillies hit him leadoff just like every other team he's been on hits him. He hits leadoff more than any other spot in the lineup. And, oh, by the way, he's won multiple World Series. As a leadoff hitter. (laughs) I mean, I get it. He isn't Ricky Henderson. You guys are so stuck on what you watched when you were in high school. Kyle Schwarber is not Ricky Henderson. But they went to the World Series with him batting leadoff. And he obviously feels more comfortable hitting in that spot in the lineup than he does further down the lineup. They put him back there, and he hit two home runs yesterday. And then the text message the next day is, why in the world is he hitting leadoff? I I don't understand. Like, if you would have told me, hey, he struck out all five times yesterday, why is he hitting leadoff again? Okay, he had two home runs yesterday and had three hits the day before. I just feel like the people who keep complaining about him hitting leadoff are just ignoring the fact that this is what he's always done. It's like they want to, they, they completely dismiss the fact that you go through his, you know, back of the baseball card, his splits are 60% of his career, he's hitting a leadoff hitter. Mm. So the Cubs won a World Series with him in the leadoff. The Red Sox won a World, got to a World Series with him in the leadoff, right? And he got to a World Series with the Phillies as a leadoff hitter. So why did three teams that got to a World Series hit him leadoff, but you think he should have hit leadoff? Uh, I think it's basically based on uh, he's a 40-home run guy. And in people's minds, a 40-home run guy, because that's where they that's what it was when they were young. They remember, they revert back to when they learned the game. The guy who hits 40 home runs hits in the what spot in the order? Four. He doesn't hit one, he hits four. You learned that when you were 18. Now you were 12. I don't know. Maybe this is the same person who thinks that the girl who talks to him on Instagram with two million followers likes him. I don't know. Does the person with two million followers talk to you? Well, they like, they like if you leave a comment on like their picture, they might comment back, be like, thank you or something. Then the person I'm like, oh, they love me. Um, yeah, Kyle Schwarber has led off 255 times in his career. He has hit in the leadoff spot a hundred more times in terms of games than any other spot in the lineup. That's line. a lot. Yeah, he's hit 255 times as the leadoff hitter. He hit sixth, 147 games. So he's hit over a hundred times more leadoff than he has sixth. His next highest position was fifth, where he hit 138 games. And in the five hole, he hits 199. And in the six hole, he hits 256. Now as a leadoff guy, he hits 222 with 81 home runs. The next highest home run spot he has is in the two hole where he hit 35 home runs. I will say this, his on base percentage is higher in other spots in the lineup. His on base percentage is higher in the four hole, 371 than it is, but he's only hitting the four hole 81 times. Right. Yeah. Huge difference. Yeah. Listen, I I don't love him in that spot, but I'm also not, like, pounding my fist to get him out of that spot. They went to the World Series with him in that spot. Who's to say that, uh, 
Hey, we went to the World Series. Let's do something completely different. <laughs> I mean, again, I don't love Hoskins in the two-hole. We went to the World Series with him hitting the two-hole. Now he's out of the lineup right now, and I think this team has um, been hurt by him not being here. Schwarber has hit most of his career as a six-hitter. That is not accurate. He is not hit, accurate at all. He is hitting the six-hole. He has 559 at-bats in the six-hole. He has 1,142 at-bats in the leadoff spot. It's not even close how many at-bats he has leadoff first six. He has almost 500 more at-bats batting leadoff. 97.3 ESPN presents the Sports Bash with Mike Gill. It's time for Football at Four with Jeff Mosier. I think our track record in the last 20 years, how many NFC's titles, playoff appearances, and appearances in the NFC Championship game, those are some of the metrics I look at, and um, I'll compare our record with uh, almost anybody. Powered by the Inside the Birds podcast. Now, live from inside the Matt Black Kia Studios. This is Football at Four. Football at Four is powered by the Inside the Birds podcast with Adam Kaplan and this guy right here, Jeff Mosher, on a Mosher Monday as we take a look at some Eagles OTA news, some stuff happening over at camp, a lot of conversation over the weekend about this team and they're back at OTAs today, tomorrow, off Wednesday, back on Thursday. And the Inside the Birds guys drop the new podcast, which is fresh and out the kitchen right now. <laughs> Jeff Bosch is in the house. What's up, buddy? How are we doing, Mike? What's going on? All is good, man. Uh, this is the final kind of few days here for the Eagles to be out there. And we're hearing a lot about the rookies here. Let's start uh, with some of the rookie stuff that you guys possibly uh, hearing over at uh, Inside the Birds. Nolan Smith all over the field at the OTA practices. Uh, give us a little preview or a little thought on what we might see with Nolan Smith that might have people excited uh, come training camp. Yeah, I mean, I got to see it for myself uh, last Thursday's open camp. And it, the point I was making was that if you remember his introductory press conference, he talked about no matter what you get from Nolan Smith, you're going to get 100% of his effort, a uh, relentless type of player, <clears throat> someone who practices as hard as he plays. And when you were watching the actual scrimmaging part of practice, which was really like, I would call it a six on eight, it would be. Um, a quarterback and skill position players versus uh, a defense that didn't have interior linemen. So two edge rushers, maybe a linebacker or two, and then a back-end coverage. Nolan Smith was constantly out there as an edge, stand-up edge rusher, but you can't hit the quarterback, right? So you'd watch him fire off the line of scrimmage, come within a couple of steps of the QB, stop, then basically almost like run a wheel route, right? Like just turn around and run toward the ball carrier or whoever caught the ball and just pursue that person. He would just keep running all the way until the end, which is something the offensive players are taught to do. You catch the ball. It doesn't matter if the whistle blows. You just run all the way to the end zone while the defense subs in and out. But as a defender, I just thought he was all over the place, running all over the field and, and showing that hustle and that um, leadership and that 100% of practice that he spoke about. Yeah, I mean, Nolan Smith was a guy who they end up getting at the bottom half of the first round, and you're thinking, hey, this was a the guy they thought about, you know, a lot of mock drafts and buzz that they might have taken him a little earlier. So I know it's OTAs, but do we begin to think, hey, will this guy have a bigger impact than maybe we envisioned a month ago? I can't say anything's changed about 
I don't even know what the role they envision him as. I mean, I think that that's up him for him to decide. They have two primary edge rushers that we know of, right? Josh Sweat and um, Hassan Reddick. Uh, they have Brandon Graham, who is an edge rusher. Now, they're a little bit different on the inside now with Javon Hargrave gone. They could move an edge rusher inside on the four-man rush. A guy like Josh Sweat, Brandon Graham has done it before, and that would open up another outside rusher. Uh, and that would probably be someone who's, you know, if you're do, moving an outside guy inside, you're probably thinking Jordan Davis off the field, right? Because he's not really yet to proven to be a pass rusher. So there might be opportunities to get Nolan Smith on the field as an edge, a st- another stand-up edge rusher if you're moving Sweat or Graham inside. Um, but, you know, that's all about how well he plays, how fast he acclimates, and how impactful he is. Yeah, Nolan Smith, uh, someone that we're definitely going to want to watch a little closer uh, when they get to training camp, you know, just to see how they kind of use him, you know, and what kind of role. Is he going to be limited to just certain packages? Are they going to kind of find a way to get him uh, in multiple packages, in multiple places on the field? I think that will be something uh, that we're all going to want to kind of keep an eye on. Uh, give me some thoughts on uh, what that slot cornerback uh, is possibly shaping up to look like when they get to training camp. I know McPherson now going into his third year. You got Maddox there and then you got all those other nomads uh, who have been around for a while. So uh, kind of give me you know, your indication on what that slot corner battle is shaping up to look like. Yeah, I would think that Zach McPherson entering year three would have a pretty good chance to make the team as a backup slot corner, which is um, a pretty priority backup position because of Avante Maddox's injury history. You know, last year they gave that job to Josiah Scott, and um, he got targeted, and he gave up a lot of passes and yards on those targets. So didn't exactly ace the test. McPherson is a guy they drafted to be, you know, a backup corner. Probably thought of him as a backup outside, but he really hasn't had the opportunity to get out there and prove that he can do that. You know, people we spoke to, Greg Cosell in general, thought that he probably would function better in the slot than the outside. So uh, we'll see if, if he can do that. Most of the other corners that the Eagles either drafted or acquired, whether it's Greedy Williams or, you know, Keely Ringo, right, or some of the um, Eli Rickses of the world, they're all like 6'1", 6'2", 205, you know, they're they're bigger perimeter-only type guys. So that gives McPherson, I think, pretty good opportunity as a guy who probably is more natural in the slot, 5'10", corner, um, to, to try to make the team there. Would you anticipate at all that's a possibility – you know, I think last year we talked a little bit, maybe it was with you, I don't recall, but uh, Chauncey Garner, they use him at safety, a little bit of slot corner here and there. Could they use Maddox in that type of role where maybe he plays some safety and some slot, or do they view him strictly as a slot guy? Well, they've, they've viewed him strictly as a slot guy for the last two years. They did play him at safety in a pinch his rookie year, if you remember. Right, yeah. Played all right there. Um, I, You know, I would love to know if they're thinking – now, this isn't normal thinking, where if you move guy to safety, you're taking a mileage and load off of him um, because safeties are pretty busy. They have to tackle. So I don't know that you're helping out his career any much by moving him to safety. You might be helping out your team because of what you have at safety, but um, then you might be weakening yourself at nickel. So I get your point, though. Can you start him at safety and base – and then move them to nickel, and then just bring in a safety. Yeah, you could. Um, or, or I'm saying, and that's what, and that's where I go to a guy like McPherson. If somebody jumps off the page and says, "Hey, we trust this guy enough that we can," you know, Greedy Williams, 
We trust him enough that we could play him in the slot, and, and that allows us to use Matt. Because I think Maddox, they put him there because they trust him in that slot, and they had other options in safety. But we know that safety is not a spot that has a definitive answer jumping off the page at you right now. And I don't know that Maddox is any better than the guys you already have there because he's unproven. Yeah, and I don't, I don't look at the stockpile of corners that they've acquired and think any of them naturally transition well to safe, uh, to nickel. Like Greedy Williams, I don't think is, is a slot corner just because he's tall and slender and long armed and you have to tackle if you're a nickel corner and it's not exactly his forte. Josh Job is, has been viewed as a hybrid, but more of a outside corner safety hybrid than a corner in outside corner inside corner hybrid. So. I, you know, yeah, I'd, 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 I'd be surprised if Avante moved out of that slot role. Moshe, uh, Rashad Penny is at the OTAs. You know, he went down in October with the Seahawks. Uh, haven't heard from him. He had a broken leg last year. But 5'11", 220 pounds. He's on the field. I guess that means he's going to be cleared up, ready to go uh, for training camp. And at 5'11", 220 pounds, this is a guy who averaged 6.1 yards a carry last year in only five games. But if Rashad Penny's healthy, I'm not sure that Eagle fans really are clear on, you know, just how good this guy could be if he's 100 percent he's a big guy mike i mean that that sort of jumped out at me right away not 511 is not tall but 511 and stocky sometimes people confuse stocky with maybe pudgy but i'm not saying that at all i mean he's he's stocky he's like barrel chest you know he's, he's strong he's muscular he doesn't look like some of the running backs we've had around here uh in the past except maybe like garrett blunt except like garrett blunt was tall but this is a guy with big calves, big arms, and you know it's no surprise that he had that has that huge average. But you do wonder if a guy that big who runs upright can ever really stay healthy. I mean, he's got—I don't know if he's going to try to change his running style, and if he does, if that's going to make him less impactful. I mean, he's part of a rotation at the moment, so that might help him. But it really does jump out just how how physical he looks. Yeah, uh, that penny. For a running back, especially. I mean, last, I mean, when you put Miles Sanders and Kenneth Gainwell and Boston Scott on the field or in a practice and, and the one that sort of jumps out as muscular as Boston Scott, right? Because he is, he's another short, stocky guy. But I mean, in general, that's not a lot of beefy guys right there. But then, so when you put, when you put Rashad Penny next to him, he stands out. I know, uh, we're talking with Jeff Mosher, football at four from insidethebirds.com. Uh, the latest inside the birds, you guys kind of talked about that, uh, slot corner. Um, the wide receiver, Britton Covey was a guy who, you know, last year, um, you know, kind of returned punts and everything, but could he be an option in the pass game this year against, you know, everybody thinks Zacchaeus comes in and gets that slot role. You got Quez Watkins, but is Covey got something to say about all that? You know, he probably will. I'm sure he's worked a lot this offseason on, you know, refining his offensive game. I saw him take a nice little pass from Mariota uh, between two defenders and then make that quick, you know, you stick your foot in the ground, you turn up field. That's huge for a slot receiver. Uh, the ability to make that catch in traffic, but then add on, you know, especially in an offense like the Eagles that spreads you out, be able to turn that foot and go up the field, add a vertical presence there. I mean, he's not going to change the fact that he's five nine, five ten, right? So, I mean, uh, he's he's not going to give you a whole lot of contested catch. He's not going to win a lot of 50-50 balls. He's going to have to be sort of a guy who catches the ball in space in a zone or beats a guy by a step and tries to go upfield. So that limits him a little bit. 
But, you know, as Andrew DiCecco detailed on our website, InsideTheBirds.com, and you guys probably spoke about it last time he was on, there's there's about eight or nine different really interesting wide receiver candidates here for spots that should be up for grabs. I mean, really, outside of the top two, and I'm sure Quez and Zacchaeus, you know, will they both definitely make the team? I don't know about that, but probably. But you'll still have – let's say one doesn't. That, get, that opens up sort of two spots most likely, if not three – for a lot of these names that are in camp that are intriguing, whether it's a Charleston Rambo or a Joseph Nada, a Hazelwood, I mean, a Tyree Cleveland who appeared to be uh, not practicing the other day, but on the field. Either way, there's, there's sort of like a, you know, a 31 t- flavors type of um, appearance to this wide receiver group. Yeah. And I, I guess uh, to peel the onion on and, and on that uh, uh, position, generally one of those guys, goes and returns kicks or punts and how much of a factor that is in in that whole um wide receiver room yeah i mean that's big and that's what got britain covey onto the roster you know last year his ability to punt return which he got better at as the season went on um but i don't, I don't know if we, I, we have to also see these guys they brought in and their ability to return punts and if they can give you a little bit more in the offensive game as well mm. Uh, talking with Jeff Mosher, of course, football at four here on the Sports Bash Live 97.3 ESPN. I know, um, uh, the report, I guess, over the weekend, um, what about, uh, the Eagles? This is funny because, the, the, you know, obviously it was a report that Russell Wilson uses no trade to decline, but how many times have the Eagles kind of avoided, um, a move that they wanted to have happen that they didn't get have that go their way that has aided them in becoming the team they are now of all these things that didn't happen that they tried to have happen. Wilson at the top of that list, I guess Allen Robinson was another guy they tried to get. Oh, I mean, do you want to go back to Ben McAdoo being the guy over uh, Doug Peterson? I mean, we, you want to go back to Byron Jones being the preference over Darius Slay. I w- we could play this game for a long, long time. <laughs> right. There's a lot of good plan Bs uh, that have worked out in the Eagles' favor. Yeah, you, know, you just wonder because, like, I remember last summer, man, I used to have a bunch of these guys on Twitter just like, Herzl suck. He's ne- we know what he is. And I said, look, I'm willing to, to – ride with him for another year and everybody wanted Wilson or Deshaun Watson or to even draft a guy but just how different this team may have been if they made that trade for Russell Wilson Uh, and that doesn't mean Wilson would have came here and stunk like he did in Denver but imagine if that was the case and we would never have known that Hertz is the player that he has become yeah it is pretty amazing right I mean all the things that had to happen to make that to to make to starting with Hertz right and then not ha- being able to flirt with the quarterbacks to then you know some of the the pieces around him who were not supposed to be Plan A either from AJ Brown like you mentioned there was first there was Calvin Ridley then there was Allen Robinson you know um, at safety they were going to put a lot of money into Marcus Williams and what if he signs that do they also sign Hassan Reddick I don't know you know it's just it's, it's it's a fascinating what if. Yeah, you, you mentioned the AJ Brown one. I mean, how many different wide receivers they tried to get that they end up not getting? Um, you know, mm-hmm. let me ask you this: If on the wide receiver front, nobody seems to be in on DeAndre Hopkins, right? Do you see a uh, scenario yeah. if he's just willing to play for the best situation? In other words, I'll take less money to go to a place to win. Do you? I just wonder how does he fit into this offense? I mean, where where does he go? I wonder it too. Um, and, 
at the end of the day, I don't think he's going to have to wind up settling for a one-year, really low, incentivized contract. Maybe he will. Uh, and if that's the case, then he's probably going to want to go to a place where he can catch, you know, at least 55, 60 balls, and that might not be with the Eagles. If he's just ring-chasing and willing to play for – a little bit of money, then that makes sense. Well, there was but some I, thought I, over we the weekend. as much in the NFL. Yeah, there were some thoughts over the weekend. Like, we'll see how um, how realistic he is about winning because I guess Kansas City might have interest, but they don't have any money to spend to get him. So if he right. wants to go to Kansas City to try to rent, w- win a ring, all right, you're going to have to take considerably less amount of money to do that than, say, some other team that might have more money to pay you to go there. But at least in Kansas City, he could catch 50 balls. I mean, he'd be their number one or number two receiver right off the bat. I mean, he doesn't – Kansas City is a great team, obviously, but they don't have an A.J. Brown, Devontae Smith, you know. I mean, they're sitting there hoping Kadarius Toney you know, can keep his head on straight, and they've got Travis Kelsey. He'll occupy a lot. And they drafted Sky Moore last year, and they drafted another receiver in the second round this year whose name's escaping me. So – um, I mean, they have a lot of guys that, that you know, the Justin for, uh, Rosses and everything, but they don't have a lot of all pro proven guys other than Kelsey. So I would think DeAndre Hopkins could say, all right, at least if I'm taking less money, I'm going to a place where I'm going to be very productive and then give myself a chance to be a very coveted free agent the next year. Yeah. I, I, I yeah. Even if he walked in and said, I'll play for the Eagles for free. That sounds great. I just don't know, like, is there enough balls for him with A.J. Brown, Devonta Smith, uh, who's a slot guy out of that crew? I, I just yeah, well, they'll, they'll figure that out. If he wants to play for, you know, league minimum, <laughs> league and if he minimum. says, I'll, I want to play for the Eagles, they'll work that out. Yeah, because <laughs> you also got to keep in mind, you have Goddard in this offense, too, that needs to, to get involved, too. So I still sure. think it's pretty far-fetched for the people who are wondering about Hopkins, who still does not have a team. Jeff Mosher has a team. It's InsideTheBirds.com in the Inside the Birds podcast, and it's right here on Football at Four on the Sports Bash today, tomorrow. They're off Wednesday. Thursday will be the last OTAs. Of course, we'll have full coverage here on Football at Four with the guys here on the Sports Bash. All right, Moshe, appreciate did you, it. Did you vote on – did you listen to our, our draft? I did. I was looking over the teams this morning, and mm-hmm. uh, let me bring it back up here because um, I didn't – I didn't, um, let's see. I'll read it off for the people real quick. The, uh, jo- um, uh, Adam and Jeff did a NFC East draft. Now he got hurt, so he had the first pick. Adam, they got hurt, right. And you took Prescott. Yeah, I didn't take Prescott second, though. I mean, I smartly built up my offense. Knowing that he can't take another quarterback, right? I literally took Dak Prescott last and just built up my offensive line and wide receivers. Right. So. So Adam has Hertz, Saquon, McLaurin, mm-hmm. Devonta Smith, Brandon Cooks, and then Goddard as your skill players. You have Prescott Pollard, AJ Brown, CD Lamb, Dotson, and Waller. Uh, so I, well, obviously, I mean, I like Pollard a lot, but you gotta like Barkley a little better. So he's got Hertz and Barkley. You got yeah, Brown. Yeah, he definitely has the better skill position quarterback running back. Combo. Right. But you yeah. have Brown and Lamb, which I like better than McLaren and Smith. And then right. Dotson and Cooks, I would say are comparable. Cooks probably has a better resume. Dotson sure. maybe a little bit better. And then I like Goddard better than I like Waller. Totally. And then 100%. your offensive line. You know, obviously you've got Mylotta. No, he does. I mean, he's That's got Mylotta. You've got uh, Thomas, who came on big time last year. Dickerson, I like him a lot. You've got Kelsey, who's obviously the best there. Martin and Steele. Um, 
I gotta go. I think with, I got the elite offensive line. He got the elite quarterback running back tandem, but I got the elite offensive line. Yeah, I'm. Yeah, but I got. I, I got to go with Hertz. Well, I don't. Man, you got the it's better tough, receivers. Right? Yeah, you got the better receivers than he does, and you have the better offensive line than he does. Yeah, it's a tough one. I think it was good. It was a fun exercise. So we we encourage you can go to at Inside Birds, find our poll, and just draft on who you think. Uh, had the best uh, draft. Yeah, check that out over at InsideTheBirds.com if you want to check out their full drafted rosters, all NFC East draft for the guys. And, of course, Adam will be here tomorrow stating his case, I'm sure, uh, here on Football at Four. Thanks, Mosh. You got it, brother. Uh, it. Jeff Mosher, everybody, another edition of Football at Four here on the Sports Bash Live on 97.3 ESPN and the 97.3 ESPN free mobile app, you know, well, the weekend has come and gone. Did you have a night out? Well, Trio North Wildwood gives you that opportunity. This weekend, every weekend, make your reservations on Resi. They're open Thursday through Saturday from the start of June. And then starting June 21st, when the summer gets here, they'll start opening Wednesdays as well. They'll be expanding their service to six days a week, Wednesday through Monday. They're closed on Tuesdays, so check out Trio North Wildwood American Cuisine with a global flair. That's Chef Gus down there. It's a gastro eatery. I love the place in terms of the atmosphere. The building's cool. 700 New Jersey Avenue, North Wildwood. Make your reservations on resi.com and make sure you check out this summer the newest Wildwood Restaurant, North Wildwood, New Jersey Avenue, 700. That's Trio, North Wildwood. You know, I had been there for dinner, and we're planning on getting back down there. You know, as soon as this summer kind of kicks into full force, we always like to find something to do on a Friday night, and we try to make a point of it to take a drive down to Wildwood, Cape May, Avalon, to try all the Cape May County spots. And we've already been down to Trio once. We're going again. we got a crew already planning to get back there because we love, you know what else? BYOB. Big time right there. That's Trio North Wildwood. I'm Mike Gill. This is the Sports Bash live on 97.3 ESPN. Coming up next, we've got Sound of the Day, Adam Silver and Charles Barkley. Clash. I react. Coming up on the Sports Bash. Now, back. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Sports Bash on 97.3 ESPN. 428 Sports Bash 97.3 ESPN. The 97.3 ESPN free mobile app. I'm Mike Gill. Josh Jennings, my producer. Sound of the day. I like this conversation. Um, it was on NBA TV last night, I believe, before game two of the NBA Finals. Adam Silver and Charles Barkley I had a little back and forth. And uh, I don't know. This whole concept of what the NBA is talking about for next year. I still am not buying in, but maybe the commissioner could sell me. So the, the commissioner, if they first gave an opportunity to explain the idea of the in-season tournament. So it was uh, Matt Weiner was anchoring, asked the initial question, and on the panel along with the commissioner was 
Shaquille O'Neal, Steve Smith, and then the aforementioned. No Kenny Charles Smith Barker. for uh, the NBA TV? No, he was not there last night. Just but, uh, just, just Chuckster. Yeah, just Chuck, Shaq, and Kenny uh, Steve Smith. Gotcha. All right. Not Kenny Smith, Steve Smith. Uh, but here was Adam Silver's explanation of the in-season tournament. And I will preface this by saying, if you're driving along, this explanation may annoy you. Take a listen. Taking a page from international soccer where they have other things to compete for, not just, in our case, the Larry O'Brien trophy. So we're actually taking, for the most part, a series of games, regular season games, and we're, and we're designating those as tournament games, kind of like what they do in European soccer. And so those, to- those games will count both for the regular season and for this in-season tournament. And then the, the four teams that are still standing will come together and we'll go to a neutral site. We haven't designated that site yet. Okay. And then they'll play for a separate... You know, in essence, a, a separate trophy. And it'll be a new tradition. It'll probably take a little bit while to get it going. But, you know, I think what you guys know in this league, it's a long season to play for one championship at the end. And it's not going to replace the Larry O'Brien trophy. But it's our hope that, just like in college, there's a lot of, you know, there's a Thanksgiving tournament or a holiday tournament. Yep. And guys who play in those tournaments, they care about winning. It's not a replacement for the NCAA tournament. But it's to give a little bit more, something more special, a little bit more incentive around those games. I gotta imagine Chuck and Shaq had to sit there just shaking their heads like, I want to rip this guy so bad, but I can't rip the commissioner. He was kind enough to join us on the set, and I just can't sit here and say, do you really think these players are going to care at all about this in-season tournament? I just don't get it. I don't understand how people in the room got together and said, hey, I got a great idea. Why don't we have an in-season tournament in the middle of the regular season and hopefully people will care more about a trophy in the middle of the season that no one really cares about than the one at the end of the season? I have a huge problem with his explanation. I think that his explanation is very is very naive to who his audience is. Well, he's is. trying to compare this to college basketball, like the, the preseason NIT and the, the, the Maui Classic right. and the Jimmy V. The like, value of those things is, hey, Kentucky doesn't play Kansas every year. So this year we're going to see Kentucky versus Kansas. It's a it's a showcase event. It, it you know the NBA doesn't need a showcase event. We see the Sixers play well, the Warriors that's twice the a thing. year. That's the thing. The Maui Classic, the Jimmy V, the preseason NIT, whatever insert, you know, preseason thing here is a way to get two schools that play in different conferences to play against each other. The NBA, everybody plays everybody. So the Sixers playing in a midseason playoff tournament or whatever you want to call this thing, in-season tournament against Golden State isn't doing much for me. I see them play twice already anyway. Correct. And the problem with comparing it to Europe is there's a lot of people, you know, whether people want to admit or not, they they don't care what happens in Europe. They say we're America. We play our sports a certain way here. We don't care that. Well, I will say this. Is he trying to capitalize on the fact that the NBA has a younger demo and that that younger demo are more soccer fans and maybe they understand that concept and can get behind it? I think he's trying to. And listen, I give him credit for trying to think outside the box to do something. Because, listen, he understands what we all understand. The NBA regular season has lost its bite. You have a 44-38 and 38 team uh, three games away from winning your championship. So that's a problem for them. That's saying our NBA regular season has lost them. And then 
you have the load management. So what's to say? These are regular season games for the most part, right? These are regular season games that will apparently have more meaning behind them. In theory. In theory, this pocket of games will have more meaning behind them. But how are they going to pick? Are they just randomly, hey, Tuesday night in February, this is a tournament game? Well, the idea is it's supposed to... The initial proposal was it's supposed to happen in, like, November, you know, or January. Well, the problem is November and January, it doesn't matter what you're doing because the NFL is on. So what you're doing is, is you're, like, how many people actually watch the Maui Invitational in November? Well, I do, but I'm a college basketball junkie. You're, you're a junkie, right. So the, the casual fan is still watching football that time of year. You know, the NBA refuses to take their games off of the night of the NFL draft. The NFL draft has got like a gazillion viewers and the NBA playoff game that day has like two million. I, I don't under like I don't understand the concept of we play for the Larry O'Brien trophy and that's the most important thing for us, but we're gonna add another trophy in the middle of the season to get the now he did mention that there will be a monetary value right, well, that's, on these. And that's where the part where Chuck uh, Charles Barkley comes in because Barkley has an immediate follow-up to this because he has his own concerns. And I think his concerns are voicing what the majority of people listening have the concern. Barkley to Adam Silver. So uh, these are the weaker teams or the better teams? It's every team is competing. Every team is competing. Well, okay, so we already got the load management issue, okay? Why would I risk, if I'm one of the teams who's trying to win the Larry O'Brien Trophy, why would I? What's in it for me to play in that tournament? We already having a hard time getting these guys it, to play. It, it, it's an absolutely fair question. We talked to players a lot about. It. First of all, all of the games except for the well, the games also count towards the regular season. Okay. So you have the same incentive to care about your record, and there's prize money, and it's significant. So there's a financial incentive too to compete. All right, there you go. It's prize money, and it's significant. That's the only reason why they're going to add this in. So I guess the question will be: Are these players really going to Tuesday night in January pick it up to another level because there's some significant prize money at hand here? And what's the precedent that you're setting that you're paying these guys millions and millions of dollars, and now we have to throw more money into the pot to get them to play at a higher level? I don't like this idea that money is going to automatically get these guys up and running because we know that the All-Star game, which is an exhibition, has money attached to it, and that game's a bit of a fiasco. So I don't know if putting yeah, but significant that, the difference, money on the, the All-Star game, to me, doesn't play here because it's an exhibition game, and we know that. He is clear that these are regular season games and that they will count door count as such. So they are games that have quote unquote legitimate meaning as opposed to the All-Star game which has no meaning. That is true. So the All-Star game having money attached to it is to try to have them play for something on a night where essentially they are don't care. Well, they're not being paid for the All-Star game. They're doing something out of their, you know, out of their work. Right, they're they're doing something outside of the norm of their schedule. Right, they don't get paid to uh, play in the All Star game, essentially. So I get that part, but he's saying, "See, I don't know the structure of this thing." Now he did say there's going to be a neutral site. Yes. So could that be something that gets 
cities or areas that are not NBA towns. Well, for involved. example, the the conversation has been Vegas. The idea they would go yeah, to Vegas. Vegas is starting to get a little played out to me. <laughs> I mean, uh, Dave Sampson today, uh, nothing personal, the podcast, he talked about the whole Vegas thing, and he makes a great point that the A's are talking about going to Vegas. Right. And he said, look, if you're not first, you're last. The Vegas Golden Knights own that town. And you're going to bring another team in there that might not be nearly as good. I mean, this Oakland A's team is historically one of the worst teams of all time right now. 100%. So you're going to bring in a team that needs to fit 40,000 people into a stadium. You're asking what is kind of a economically challenged area, Vegas, which has low year-round population. You're asking them to support a team in the middle of the summer. Doesn't think that's going to fly. Samson doesn't. I tend to agree. But the whole NBA thing, okay, fine. You're going to put this whole thing in Vegas. That's fine. The summer league's in Vegas, and it seems to be well attended. So one year it's in Vegas. Is it always in Vegas? I was talking about maybe putting it in cities that don't have NBA teams. Not Vegas doesn't have an NBA team, but it has had some NBA. Like a St. Louis. St. Louis, um, Seattle, Buffalo. I don't know. Buffalo's not the most uh, glamorous place. But you know what I'm saying? Like places that don't have NBA so that they can get a taste of the NBA. I mean, that would be a nice idea if, if the league actually cared about the fans more than just – Paying the players a load of cash. Yeah, I, I don't. I look right now. He had an opportunity to try to get me sold on this thing. I'm not in yet. Now, show me the schedule. Show me where this falls. Show me how it falls. Who am I playing? Why am I excited about the Sixers playing the Hornets on Tuesday night in December? Oh well, it's for this trophy. Why am I excited about that trophy? We already live in a society where I'm tired of everybody gets a trophy. I don't need to manufacture another trophy that I'm not excited about. So I don't see – they put it this way. Silver had a chance to sell me. He failed. Yeah, I think that this is going to struggle out of the gate. I think people, Well, he did say it might take a little while to catch on. What's a little while? Like how how – how committed is the league to this, Mike? Well, what's the what is the drawback or what is the repercussions if it doesn't catch on in the first three to five years? Because, not losing money on it. Well, not theoretically, but the idea to me is that like every year we have to get up on these microphones and explain. Here's how the play-in tournament works. Every year. People still don't fully understand it. And it's a crucial part to why one team is in the NBA Finals this year. So, if yeah, but I didn't have. I don't love the play-in tournament, but it's not. It's not doing anything to the regular season. No, but what I'm saying is we're still. Oh, I guess it is in some. In some capacity, it is doing something to the regular season because the concept of the play-in tournament was to get teams to want to try to strive. To not lose games. Right. That was the reason of it. And the the question is, if we're still explaining to people how the play-in tournament works, how are we supposed to be sure we can explain the in-season tournament? Like, you know how people are going to be confused by that? People are going to be like, wait, what's going on with this? Why does it matter? 
and it's going to turn into a – people don't like to have to figure things out. They just want to turn on a game and watch. They don't want to have to understand the algebraic equation of why this game matters more than another game. Well, I think one of the issues has become people are not tuning in to watch these regular season games because the regular season games have been devalued so much. So they're trying to find ways to generate extra excitement behind a game that we have pretty much deemed meaningless. Now, I don't know that this is the right... Just because we're not big fans so far of how they're executing it doesn't mean... I don't think they're wrong. Their regular season has been minimized. Correct. But I don't know... So they have identified that they have an issue. I don't know that just because they identified that they have the issue that they have come up with the right solution. Correct. So I give them credit for saying... Hey, look, we have a problem here. We have an 82-game season, and that for how many months? October, November, December, January, February, March, six of the months, nobody really cares all that much. Right. So what can we do to generate interest outside of the obvious answer? Cut down the number of games. Can't do that. We need the 41 home dates for our owners. So they're trying to do something else. So I acknowledge the fact that I give them credit for acknowledging they have an issue. Their regular season is too long and has been virtually deemed meaningless. The players are saying it's meaningless. The coaches, the organizations are saying these games don't matter enough for us to play our best players in these games all the time. So you have a problem. How do I try to fix that problem? I don't know that this is the right answer, but it's the first step, I guess, in them trying. Yeah, I guess we give them a... a check mark for effort well the concept of the everybody wins a trophy you know they are are they jumping on that and thinking that people are going to accept that like the younger generation maybe they do accept that you know we're old uh fuddy duddies maybe we don't accept that but maybe a guy listening who's in his early 20s or so right now says what are you guys talking about the soccer has it right we love this idea I'm just my. I always fall back on. I feel like there's so much that happens in sports that there's a lot of people. Look at this Kyle Schwarber thing. You know, people don't know that Kyle Schwarber has a 500 more at bats as a leadoff hitter than anything else in a lineup. If people need that explained to them multiple times every single day, and you know, how is something like an in-season yeah, tournament going to work listen. out? You are being critical of people for not having the time in their day to do what we do for work. No, I'm not criticizing it. What I'm, I'm criticizing the sport because what they're saying is the sport is assuming that the fans are going to know what's going on. The average fan doesn't have time to figure this stuff out. The average fan doesn't want to turn on the game and be confused. You never should give somebody a reason to not tune in or tune. Or you never give somebody a reason to tune out instead of tune in. And I think that's my concern here. You, I don't think it's fair for these leagues to assume the fans always know what's going on. No, they don't. And and we see this all the time. But that's what he said. This could take a couple of years to catch on. I think he was pretty clear with that. Yeah, but how many years is a couple of years? What's the difference? It's not hurting their product. It's not helping the product. If it's not helping the product, it's not hurting the product. It's not like they're playing regular season games. You are saying if this isn't a home run grand slam off the first year, then it's a failure. He's saying, no, that's not the case. These are regular season games. They count for regular season. We're going to put more, we're going to try to put more meaning behind them. 
But if it doesn't catch on, it's still a regular season game. It just had this fluffy other meaning on the side where players are playing for more money. To them, it's a no-lose situation, but I don't think it's going to do anything to generate more interest. You're doing a better job of explaining it than they are. Well, I'm smarter than most of them. (laughs) Would you like to run the NBA, Mike? Um, eh, I don't know. I don't know that commissioner of the NBA is, is up my alley. Maybe baseball, but baseball might be something I'd be a little bit more qualified to uh, to maybe be in charge. If you of. could pick a commissioner of any sport, you would choose baseball. Probably, yeah. I mean, baseball is more of my background than than anything else. I mm-hmm. mean, I enjoy basketball. I love football. Baseball, though, is what I certainly have more intricate knowledge of than any of the other sports. Baseball gets you up in the morning, not necessarily, but. I think I, I mean, I think the game needs a lot of work. Although I got to say, the pitch clock seems to be working. I like the pitch clock. Um, the base things, I don't know that that's had as big of an impact uh, as people thought. But I haven't really noticed the, yeah. the bases factoring into anything. Well, the stolen bases are they up? Are they down? I haven't really done enough research on that. I guess um, to say, hey, our team's utilizing that more. Um, the disengagement stuff, you know, throwing over. I don't think teams are taking advantage of the pitchers when they've thrown over all that stuff nearly as much as possibly we thought they would. But, you know, that's uh, it's only early in the season right now. So we'll keep uh, that one there. But the pitch clock seems to be cutting down the games and making it a much more quicker pace of play. It definitely is a quicker pace of play. The the average game is about 25 to 30 minutes less already, so it's doing something. All right, Sports Bash Live, 97.3 ESPN, the 97.3 ESPN free mobile app. Uh, we told you earlier, we talked about it with Mosh about how this the Eagles may have avoided um, another, you know, we talked about the Bob McAdoo thing and some other things. I don't know if you guys caught this over the weekend, but you'll hear that coming up next on the Sports Bash Live on 97.3 ESPN. Now. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Smash on 97.3 ESPN. All right, 4.52. The Eagles dodged a bullet, at least according to a couple of Seattle football beats. Uh, Mike Salk, ESPN Seattle, having a conversation along with Greg Bishop, threw this in. Say that again. Bishop from Sports Illustrated. Uh, we're having a conversation on, I guess, Salk Show out in Seattle. Yes. Uh, Eagles dodged a bullet. Take a listen. I got to hear more about Russell Wilson was very nearly a, an eagle, et cetera. So I had heard that, too. My, my understanding is that that deal was basically done and Russ killed it. Yeah, I, you know, I think what I'd say is the Eagles really wanted him. I think they liked his style of play, and I think that makes sense, right? Because, you know, it's similar to Jalen Hurts, mm-hmm. especially when he was, you know, in his prime and a little bit faster, I think, than now. And, 
Yeah, my understanding is, you know, at that point in time, Russ wanted to stay here. And then ultimately, that's not what happened. Wow. Uh, again, the Eagles, I guess, had an offer on the table and Seattle wanted the offer. And Russ Wilson said, nah, don't want to go to Philadelphia. So these are two things that I learned here. One, Philadelphia has dodged many a bullet. They have tried to sign guys and other guys decided, like, you know, at the last minute, uh, not where I want to go. Two, it's another great reason to not let players be the GMs. Russell Wilson essentially looked at the Eagles roster and said, I don't want to go to that team. And nixed a deal to a team that ended up going to the Super Bowl. In part because their quarterbacks play. Maybe they wouldn't have gone to the Super Bowl had Russ Wilson been there. But it's a great example of not letting players have the input on your roster. You know that whole... You know, I like a former player being in charge of making decisions. Many times a player is not good at making decisions on players because they're too invested in the players. They have too much relationship with some of these players, and they allow it to cloud their decision-making. I thought it was interesting what Bishop said next about what the Eagles were doing for years until Jalen Hurts took, took charge of the job. The Eagles were going gangbusters after quarterbacks for a couple of years, and until Jalen... You know, they went into last season essentially saying, we're going to give him everything he needs so we can truly evaluate him. And then he showed himself to be what you thought coming out of the draft. Well, but he's one of those guys. And this is something I just see so often in the NFL. You have to give those guys everything that, that makes them them. If you put people in a compromised position and then they don't succeed... You blame them at the end of it, and you've missed out on the opportunity. Yeah, a lot of these teams are too quick to make decisions and too quick to pull the rug out from under some of these players. Again, we talked about Hurts in 2021, which was, okay, he looked like he had a solid year. Give him another shot before you try Now, by the way, the Eagles were ready to move on, it sounded like. Uh, coming up next... Here on the Sports Bash 97.3 ESPN, Nick Nurse isn't concerned with the Sixers' pass. You'll hear that next. This is the Sports Bash with Mike Gill on 97.3 ESPN. Now, live inside the Matt Black Kia Studios, here's Mike Gill. Just after 5, driving you home on a Monday edition of the Bash. Phillies lineup is out tonight. Uh, Schwarber back at the top of the lineup again, as we mentioned earlier. The lineup, Schwarber, Castellanos, Harper, Turner, Romuto, Stott, Ellis, Sosa, Guthrie. Nola's pitching tonight. They're taking on the Detroit Tigers at Citizens Bank Park. Finally back home for the Phils after a long, what was it, 10-game road trip. So uh, Phils win two out of three against Washington. They've won two in a row. Is it hitting season, everybody? Well, Phils got off to a good start with Schwarber hitting a couple of homers. Uh, Ellis had a couple of homers. But really, uh, Real Muto had a big weekend. It was a good weekend for the Phils. Offense, I thought uh, some of the highlights of the weekend also included the pitching with Ranger Suarez in the game on Saturday. I mean, excuse me, on uh, Sunday. Yesterday, he pitched really well in the game yesterday. And uh, the the one disappointing moment of the entire weekend is the fact that you scored seven runs on Friday night and you had your ace on the mound and he gave up, what, seven or eight runs 
uh, in four innings. So not a good showing by Wheeler. Got to win the games when Wheeler pitches. That's the one thing that has to start turning around about this team, right? You have to start winning the games when Nola and Wheeler are on the mound. Look, when you compare this team to last year, oh, last year they were here. Last year they were this. Last year they were that. They're about the same record last year uh, as they are this year. What are they, 27-32 and 32 right now? Let's take a look back at the Phillies in 2022. You know, you keep going back to last year, last year, last year. You know, it was this time last year they fired Joe Girardi. Right. They were what, 22 and 29, I think, when they fired Joe Girardi. So you go, hey, this last year, last year, last year. One big difference last year is they won for Wheeler. They won for Nola. They were winning the games uh, with their guys on the mound. You got to win those games. Let's go back to last year for a second. April 11 and 11. May last year, 10 and 18. A bad May last year, but it was the month of June that really turned their season around and put them in position to win the wild card. You know, we take a look at how a team's breakdowns go. The Phillies were 11 and 11 in April, 10 and 18 in May. They were 19 and 8 in June, which, you know, really propelled them to where they ended up going. In July, they were 15 and 10, five games over 500. In August, they went 18 and 11. So in that June, July, and August is really where they made the playoffs because in April, they were 500. In May, they won 35% of their games. And down the stretch in September, they only won 44% of their games. So you talk about a baseball season, April, May, they weren't all that good. They were 21 and 29. In April and May. Then they made the move to fire Joe Girardi. So you take a look at where this team is now. What are they? Um, 27 and 32. So 59 games into the season, right? 27 and 32, 59. So 59 games in the season this year. Last year they were, uh, at this point, uh, 59 games in, 30 and 29. So they were slightly better at this point last year than they are right now 30 and 29 last year and this year they are 27 and 32 so they've got to get back on the winning track with wheeler and nola pitching those are the two guys when those guys pitch that's what rode them into the world series to the world series was winning games when those guys pitch of course suarez pitched well for you at times in the playoffs last year as well but you got to win when your aces throw, and that's the big difference. You know, over the weekend, uh, we saw Schwarber turn things around a little bit. Can he can, can he continue? Um, he upped his average. What did we say? Twelve points. He was at one sixty. <laughs> I can't believe you're saying that. Fifty nine games in, the guy's hitting one sixty. But it's so early in the season that that's an indication of how early it is in the season still. He went up 12 points in one weekend. You know, we're still at the point of the season where your average is shifting 10 and 12 points based on a weekend. So I think that kind of gives you, like, we like to think it's getting late. They still have a 100, over a 100 games left in the year. You know how many things can happen in a 100 games? Seriously, when you really sit back and think about it, 
How many things can happen in a hundred games? You can have a 10-game win streak. You can have a 10-game losing streak. You can have 7 out of 10. You can have 17 out of 20. You know, last year when they were 21 and 29, right? They fired the manager. Soon as they fired the manager, what did they win? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine games in a row. They went on a nine-game win streak. Now, you could say, well, I don't see a nine-game win streak in them. Maybe they don't have a nine-game win streak in them. But do they have a streak where they win eight out of 11? You don't need to win nine straight games to get yourself back into the race, do you? No. But winning eight out of 10 helps. Winning 10 out of 13, 11 out of 14, those are the kind of streaks that you got to go on. When they got the manager got fired, they lost one, two, three, four, five straight games. They lost five in a row. Talk about a team that lost five straight games, fired the manager, and then won nine in a row. You went from losing five straight to winning nine in a row. That's how fast things can change. You know, like in um, football, when you lose on a Sunday, and the difference between a team being, say, seven and four and six and five, that one game difference. Just hearing the record, seven and four sounds like a pretty good team. Six and five sounds like a pretty average team. You're three games over 500 as opposed to just one game over 500. One game in football, record wise, really does make a big difference. But in baseball, the season is so long, you could lose five in a row, then win nine in a row, and still not make a big dent on anything. You know, the Phillies had lost five in a row to fall to 21 and 29. Then they won nine in a row, and all that did was get them one game over 500. It's like you win nine straight games, you're thinking, I make a dent? No, not really. You're one game over 500 now. So they still had a lot of work to do, even though they won nine straight games. So the Phillies... My intuition says, do I believe that Schwarber has turned the corner? Yeah, a little bit I do. Think about this. I don't think we recognize Schwarber. His power numbers right now are actually, he's hit more home runs this year at this time of the season than he did last year at this time of the season. Did you know that? When I read that this morning, I was a little surprised by that. I was shocked by that stat because I would have assumed that he was on more of a roll going into the, the massive June he had. But now looking back on it, you realize that he was uh, he was on the power struggle bus heading into June. Well, I mean, last year he had, I think it was 14 home runs on June the 4th or June the 5th, whatever it was. And I think it's either 13 and now he has 14 or he had 14 last year and now he has 15, something to that extent. So... He is actually, power-wise, it seems like he hasn't made much of an impact. But his power numbers are actually kind of on par. He just isn't getting the hits. And that's the big problem. He's striking out too much. He's not getting the base hits. You know, I think I read something that he hadn't had a single. And how long was the last time that Schwarber had a single in a game? I mean, that's crazy to think. But I'm tr- let me um, let me take He had 14 home runs. Up to June fourth last year, he also had a two hundred one batting average in that stretch too. Two hundred one batting average, and how many home runs last year? Fourteen. So, 
14, and what's he at, 15 now? Right, now he's 15. Right, he hit two yesterday, which now gives him 15 home runs on June the 5th. Last year on June the 5th, he had 14 home runs. So, power-wise, he's still doing his job of what he did a year ago. He just hasn't done anything. Now, I don't know, like, he was hitting in, like, the five hole a lot. I mean, they, he was hitting kind of three and four and five. Like, they kind of, but he had been hitting five more recently. Um, I, I don't know if him hitting in the leadoff spot is going to, it changes stuff for him. Uh, real quick, March, uh, April, Phillies went 15 and 13 in April. They went 10 and 16 in May. Last year, we told you in May, the Phillies were 10 and 18. This year they were 10 and 16. They played two less games in May than they did last year, but very similar to last year where they were 11 11 in, in April last year. This year in April, 15 and 13. May, 10 and 16 this year. Last year, 10 and 18. I mean, almost identical starts. And then June, they went 19 and 8, and that really, you know, changed the whole thing for them. You take a look at, you know, something that stands out. And so far, it's got to be the way that this pitching staff has just not been able to get the wins they had. Like we talked about, Nola pitching tonight. What's Nola? Four and four? You know, he just has not had that season that, uh, that you were anticipating or hoping for when he's up for a contract. And there was something that goes into that. I was reading something today about the trade deadline, you know, which is going to be coming up here soon in July. But if the Phillies are still hanging around 500, the article wonders whether rival GMs would actually call the Phillies about NOLA. If the Phillies are like a 500 team still, or even under 500, which is where they are now, would teams call the Phillies for NOLA with the thought of, hey, do the Phillies want to risk letting NOLA walk for essentially nothing? Remember, he's a free agent at the end of the season. They have not been able to sign him to a long-term deal. And, you know, right now, the way he's pitching, do you want to sign him to that long-term deal? He might value himself a little differently than you value him right now. I think that's going to be an interesting storyline. I mean, you originally got him on a bit of a discounted deal in the last contract negotiation. So, you know, you probably are not going to spend any crazy money to keep him. And if he feels that he is owed more money than what... What does it hurt to trade him for somebody else? What does it hurt to trade him for somebody else? Well, who's replacing him? Well, that's the question. I mean, if you're saying to yourself, what does it hurt to trade him for something else? It's kind of a general statement, but I got the answer for you. Who's taking his innings? They have absolutely nobody right now. They can't even get a guy to pitch in the number five spot in the rotation, let alone where he's pitching in the rotation. And as much as Nola has been inconsistent, I mean, he generally gives you innings. And that's the conundrum. The conundrum is if you let him go for any reason, who replaces him? You well, thought- you thought that Painter would be helping this team out now. Right. The question would be, do you guys out there really think that Andrew Painter, who hasn't pitched all season long, is going to slide right in after the trade deadline nope. and step into Aaron Nola's innings? Nope. Wait, look, whether Nola has been great or not, he does provide something that the other guys in this rotation generally don't do. He gives you innings. Whether they're great innings all the time, no, or they dominant innings, no. Many times people don't understand in the course of a 162. You know, like 
why does Kyle Gibson have a job? Because he eats up innings. Yeah. Somebody has to go out there and pitch every fifth day. These teams don't think that their number four and their number five starters are going to give them quality starts all the time. What they're hoping for is that they can just get me through five innings so that I don't have to constantly tax my bullpen. I know that's not setting the bar so high, but this is what has ended up happening with expansion and the watered-down pitching in this league right now. The other problem with the Phillies is they had the, all these prospects, Painter, Abel, McGarry, and the Miners, and none of them are ready yet. Painter well, got injured, and Abel and McGarry aren't ready. So you're you're hoping that one day you'll have these young guys up, but it's not helping you right now. No, the, the, their timeline doesn't match the problem that they have currently. The, 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 the timeline doesn't match the fact that you have Wheeler and Nola who are supposed to be your two top-end guys. Then you have a guy in Walker that you went and signed. So now you have another veteran player for making decent money. And Suarez. The younger pitchers are supposed to be ready for when you have a hole to fill in two to three years from now. Not in the event that your guys who are veterans and are making a lot of the money are struggling currently in the season. So, yeah. Um, their pitching staff, their their organizational depth is just not set up for them to be struggling. And here's another problem that the organization has had. They do not have a very good farm system. They have right. built a team based on free agent signings. Harper, Schwarber, Castellanos, Turner, Turner, Wheeler. They've had to constantly write checks because they don't have any in-house farm options. Right. And you can it's hard to constantly keep living like that and the unfortunate thing with this Phillies team today as they stand at 27-32 is you have a lot of guys that you paid a lot of money to and a lot of guys that have a lot of money coming in not putting a lot of um not putting a lot out. Turner, Schwarber, um Castellanos has had a decent year. I mean, as good of a year as Castellanos has had in terms of batting average and hits, if nobody around him is doing much, he's not as impactful as possibly he could be. Right. He loses his value when the other guys around him are not doing their jobs. Yeah. But how many people out there today think, okay, I think maybe the Phillies are, as we said, 2022, the month of June, they went 19 and 8. They won 70% of their games in June. And they really took that that 19 and 8 month of June, and that took them to the finish line. It really did. I mean, that got them to where they had to go, which was into that wild card race. If they don't have that 19 and 8 month, but you take a look at it, no other month in the regular season last year for this team did they have single-digit losses. I mean, April, they had 11 and 11. They had 18 losses in May. They had 10 in July. They had 11 in August. They had 14 in September. So generally, over the course of a long season, you go about 500 in the month, and you're hoping that one of those months is the one that kind of jumps you off. And the Phillies are hoping that that starts in this month of June, that maybe they can recreate the blueprint they had for a season ago. Sports Bash Live, 97.3 ESPN, the 97.3 ESPN free mobile app.
Let me tell you about my friends over at Ambient Cooling and Heating. You know, we're getting to that time of the year where the weather's about to turn, the weather's about to change, and my friends at Ambient Comfort, you know, I took care of this early in the season because I did have a problem with my air conditioning unit. The guys came out, they fixed it, they took care of it. Great situation. They called me 15 minutes before they got there. They sent me a text message with a picture of the guy who was coming to my house so that when I answered the door, I know exactly who I was going to see and what the guy looked like, which, you know, gives you a little peace of mind in today's world. Hey, here's the guy. He's going to be coming to your house in 15 minutes. When you answer the door, this is the guy that you get in there. So I like that feature as well. They basically were giving me a little quick tune-up between now and the start of the summer season, which it's going to start getting hot. You guys know that down the Jersey Shore when it starts cranking. So check out Ambient Comfort, Heating, Cooling, the Professionals, and check out their $59 tune-up for new customers and they'll even check out your air conditioner regardless of who installed it you can get that done with my friends at ambient comfort sports bass live 97.3 espn the 97.3 espn free mobile app we got nick nurse not concerned about the sixers past we'll tell you why coming up now back to For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Grainger. Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Grainger. For the ones who get it done. South Jersey's sports leader. All right, 525 Sports Bash. Nick Nurse says he's not concerned with the Sixers' past. Now, over the weekend, got a chance to kind of think back on Nick Nurse's hire, how he fits in, what might be different, thinking about his time in Toronto. But I want to kind of key back to some of the things he said in Wednesday's press conference. So let's start with that. Nick Nurse says he's not concerned with the Sixers' past. Take a listen. I don't really vibrate on the frequency of the past. Like, to me, when uh, we get a chance to start and dig into this thing a little bit, it's going to be only focused on what we're trying to do going forward. That doesn't matter. Next season, whatever's happened for the last how many whatever years, doesn't matter to me. It's similar to, to Toronto a little bit, right, that... that um, be kind of a clean slate for me just looking forward to how we can get it done from from start to finish it is a clean slate for him but thinking back to that comment and i listened to it again over the weekend i say to myself this if you do not learn from your past are you apt to repeat the problems in other words he's saying i'm not concerned about what happened in the past but if you don't find out what this team constantly kept doing wrong, how do you fix it? And that's one thing when I heard Nurse say that, and again, you hear him say it in real time. Sometimes you have to listen to it twice or a third time to hear some certain things. Nick Nurse saying he's not concerned about the problems this team has had in the past. It bothers me a little bit for him to say, why is this team not gotten over the hump? Well, I don't care what happened in the past. I get it. He's different. He's got to put his spin on it. 
But he also has to figure out what this team failed to do in the past so that he can figure out ways to get them over that hump. You don't want to repeat the things that they kept failing at. And to not know what they failed at or not want to target on what they failed at, I think, is missing the boat. It might be. I mean, I think his bigger point is that, you know, he can't worry about what happened before he got here because not not in a non I think he's trying to be big picture and less literal in this situation. I think he's not I don't think he's literally saying what happened in the past doesn't matter, but I think what he's saying is, look, I can't dwell on that because then I'm not gonna be able to do my job. Well, I, I get that whole point of listen, what happened in the past is done and over with, but he should be taking a look at what has Joel and B done that maybe we can fix? What are some of the things? Now he did say he expects to get more from Joel Embiid. So he's not concerned about some of the things of the past. But I'm saying go back and see how I can use Joel differently. What How have they used him? How have teams defended him? And what can I do differently? Well, Nick Nurse says he expects to get more from Embiid. You know, for me, like um, Joel has a lot of attributes, first of all, defensively. Very, very good. Right, and then offensively, he's very, very skilled. And again, it's a little bit early, but I think that once it starts and it starts uh, unfolding, and and we start learning each other and all those kind of things, we're just going to try to max it out, right? Whatever that means. I can't, I can't sit here and tell you tactically what that means today, but we're gonna, we're gonna certainly try to put him in. Situations where he's going to be super dominant. I'll tell you this. I don't know what it means for him offensively. He said super dominant at the end. But I do think you can expect maybe a better version of Joel Embiid defensively. And you might say, wow, that's pretty crazy. But think about, you know, the Sixers are a team that under Brett Brown and um, Doc Rivers were more of a drop, you know, with Embiid. He kind of dropped a lot. I'm wondering, you know, if... Nick Nurse will use him differently. And, you know, Marcus Saul was a guy that when the Sixers played against the Raptors, he gave Embiid some problems because of the way, you know, uh, Nurse kind of used him against Embiid. So I'm kind of excited to see how Nurse utilize. I know everybody cares about offense, but I'm kind of excited to see how Nurse incorporates him defensively and that that changes Embiid's dominance on the defensive end a little bit. But offensively, um, we talked about this on Friday a little bit about how aesthetically are they going to look like a different team when you just turn on the television and watch where they space on the floor and where guys are positioned on the floor. Will they look that much different? And I think they will. And that starts with Joel Embiid. Um, so that, that, that is one thing, you know, we talk about what stands out. Nurse says that. He also kind of tied something that is interesting about his experience with Kawhi Leonard and how that might help him or tie um, him to the way he uses Joel Embiid, his experience with Kawhi. Let's take a listen to what he says about that. Well, I think it'll help a lot. Um, like you said, the eighteen nineteen season, we went into that with Kawhi, who hadn't played in a long time. So we knew there was going to be a uh, load management is, is the term. I'm not sure it was the term at the time, but we knew there was basically a plan of how we were going to, you know, we looked at the season in totality and, and this is like what we think would be a good plan, kind of break it down month by month. And then kind of like everything else, as you're going, you kind of shift the path or, or, or change as 
more evidence or information becomes available to you and and go from there but i think it's it's almost like a subset of a season when you've got a player like that is it is a long-term season-long vision and plan you have to put together and then you got to kind of build it up and and adjust and change as you go but i i would yeah i think that going through that with with uh toronto in eighteen nineteen should be very valuable and when you hear that he's talking about utilizing Kawhi the load management, the way they used him that year. If you remember, Kawhi did not play the full season. If you go back to that Toronto team, there was a lot of talk about what their record was without Kawhi. They were very good without Kawhi Leonard that year. Are we anticipating, you know, that one thing that Maury said was that he wanted to try to get Joel more playoff reps in the regular season. Well, then he hires Nick Nurse, and Nurse is talking about Hey, we had a great plan with Kawhi and, you know, limiting him and that kind of stuff. I wonder if Nick Nurse sold the Sixers on maybe we shouldn't be playing Embiid 80 plus game. Or, I mean, he doesn't play 80 games anyway. Uh, Embiid doesn't, I mean, he misses enough games because of injury to begin with throughout the course of a year. But are we going to see a situation where they're going to cut him back from how many games did Joel play this year? 60 some? 65, I believe. 65, where he gets cut back to what? 55? Uh, that's going to be interesting if they get on board with even cut, because the biggest thing was that Embiid got delivered to the playoffs healthy, right? And then he got hurt in the playoffs. So right. he could sit out the full 82 game season. What's the difference if he gets hurt in the first game of the playoffs? So that whole thing worries me. I don't want to say a lot, but a little bit to hear him kind of incorporate the Kawhi thing. Well, two things. One, Embiid played 66 last year, 68 the year before. He's never played more than 68 in any season in the And he's been hurt in every single playoffs. But we should also know that Pascal Siakam has led the NBA in minutes played the last two seasons. Yeah, but he doesn't doesn't, um, load manage generally. I I mean, not that I'm aware of it. Right, so... Is there an in-between of what he did with Kawhi and what he did with Siakam? Like, is there is there like a happy medium between that for Embiid? Well, I think it's different because Siakam is not Kawhi or Embiid. He, he's he's playing all 82. He is. But I mean, because you could play Embiid 45 games and play him 45 minutes in the 45 games. But if you know that you can't play a guy as much... But you still want to get him as much as many reps as Maury said as possible. Is there an in-between then between those two extremes? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, because his experience with Kawhi and how he uses Embiid, I'm going to be interested to see how that might be incorporated with Embiid this year. Playing 65 games or 66 and 68, is he going to be somewhere in that 60 range again? Do they say, hey, you know what, we got to cut him back? See, the 66 games was fine. He got hurt for a freak accident, a freak injury happened in a playoff game, and that's bound to happen to anybody. Um, He went on to talk about Maxi, and this is the one guy on this roster who's young and has an up ceiling still to kind of reach. Here's what um, he thinks about Maxi taking that next step. He's got a, a tremendous chance to improve and take a step forward. And from all indications, and uh, that he's 
really hungry to do so. Good, good worker, good person, really wants to get better. There's some specifics, I would say, you know, making, making, being more of a creator. Uh, you know, you said about, well, what is creating? Well, creating is you're scoring or you're drawing more people than one, and then you're creating for others. So can he, can he make the reads, all the reads? And I think that's like the first place I would start offensively is, is getting him, you know, more reps in the pick and roll so he can make, make the reads to all the other players on the floor depending on what he sees. I'm really interested to see because we all think Tyrese Maxey has energy and can score and he's fun. And for the most part, he has been – look, when they drafted Tyrese Maxey 21st overall, you're not thinking about getting an impact scoring starting player. In 21st pick of the draft, you're hoping to get a rotational player. You've got much more than that. But can Nick Nurse – he talked about – Getting him more in the pick and roll, which when you get the guy in a pick and roll, which means now he's getting a one-on-one situation with a mismatch, hopefully. But he also mentioned, can he create for other players? Maxi generally gets the ball in open space when he is on a wing, taking the ball to the basket, going through you know traffic. He's talking about getting him in a situation where he's one-on-one, he can put the ball on the floor, dribble, drive, but can he kick out? Can he find somebody else? That's the next evolution. And I think Maxi hasn't shown – I'm not saying he's a low basketball IQ guy, but to have that next element of his game, is that something that you can be taught or is that something that's in you? That's my question. Well, we already saw him go from being a, a poor three-point shooter in college to being a 40% three-point shooter in the NBA. That was something he obviously learned how to do and got much better at. Yeah, but I I feel like that's different. You can work on your shot. Mm -hmm. It's hard to work on something that's either innately in you or not, having that uh, that basketball IQ. You're either a high basketball IQ guy generally or you're not. Trying to teach someone to have a high basketball IQ – it's a hard thing to just try to instill in somebody. They either have that or they don't. Well, I mean, are we sure he doesn't have it, though? Like, he hasn't even been given a lot of opportunities. That's what I'm saying. I'm interested to the see. The man driving the bus. Uh, that's what I just said. I'm interested to see if he has that in him or not. He hasn't been put in that role. So does he have that in him? I don't know. I mean, usually innately, like, for instance, in baseball, last night, or, you know, you look at a play that happens. There's a runner on third. Mm-hmm. It's a little dribbler up the third baseline. The third baseman comes in and fields it. You're probably not making the throw to first base. That guy's beating that. But do you innately have in you to field that ball pump fake to first, and then spin to third to see if you caught that guy thinking that you threw the ball and that you can kind of fake him into coming down the line too far. Gotcha. That is a play that you either have in you or you don't. Right. You And you can't really teach somebody that. That makes sense. I I hear what you're saying. I, my thing is, I ha, I felt like the, the Sixer fan was given this load of horse manure for years about how how smart James Harden was, how high his basketball IQ was. And in two of the biggest games of the year, he he looked like the guy at the YMCA, basically. Doesn't mean he doesn't have it in him. It means he didn't utilize it in that moment. Well, but if because he, he generally it, does have it. It isn't part of intelligence knowing when to utilize it. 
Yes and no. I mean, it's, it, it, he has it in him. We see it all season long that he has a high basketball IQ. For whatever reason, he's not. It's not translating into those moments. Right, to say so maybe, that he doesn't have so it in that moment. Maybe he doesn't have the IQ of how to apply the knowledge he has. It, that in and of itself is part of. Well, in that moment. In those moments, for whatever reason, look, he led the league in assists. To say that he doesn't have these attributes is asinine. That's the regular season, though. <laughs> I get that. But isn't the regular season somewhat of an indication of who you are? Well, that's what I usually say. But you tell me a lot that the regular season is being devalued. It is. The games are being devalued, but not what the person does. You have to establish something somewhere. Over the 82-game slate, if you lead the league, you have more assists than everybody out there in an 82-game slate. That's a big enough sample size to say, hey, this guy has the basketball intuition. Now, you go to the playoff game when you're being played differently and things are different, you may not be able to implement what you do in the regular season game as freely. And for whatever reason for James Harden, that shrinks even more when the games get even more important. That doesn't mean he has low IQ. It means teams are defending him differently or they're taking things away that they give him during the regular season. But if you give it to me in the regular season and I'm able to implement it, it means I have it in me. You just might not be giving that same thing to me in more crucial games. I hear you. I I just got this part of me that says I, I feel like there's there's two tiers to intelligence there's the intelligence someone inherently has and then there's a person who knows how to use that intelligence well, listen the, the application versus you the, might be able to use the intelligence that you have against lower quality intelligent players but as you have other players who are equally as intelligent as you your intelligence might not stand out as much well then maybe it's kind of the idea where it's like you know the and I'm, I know I'm going a little bit off the beaten path here but you know the the a lot of the commercial I've been seeing for the Oppenheimer movie that comes out uh, in July, don't know it. I haven't well, seen any of these commercials. Well, you know the you know the story about the atomic bomb. At yes, least, right? I was just in uh, Oak Ridge. Okay, so the idea was is that they they brought in people like Einstein and all the the super geniuses of their time, but Oppenheimer was the guy who knew how to take that intelligence and apply it properly, whereas the other guys could only talk about it in theory. So the idea is is that if you're you could have a room full of smart people. But if there's one guy in the room who is the one person who's able to apply that information, everyone's got to fall in line behind that guy. You can't have Einstein telling Oppenheimer, you're an idiot. I'm smarter than you. Well, yeah, but again, there's only one Oppenheimer. That doesn't mean that the other guys aren't intelligent. It just means this guy is the height of the head. It's like Spolstra. He right now is the best coach. And everybody says, well, coaching matters yeah, if you have Spolstra. The problem is you only got one Spolstra. Right, Nobody one Spolstra. else has a Spolstra. Right. So if you have Spolstra, your impact of your coach goes up a little bit more than everybody else. The problem is everybody thinks they've missed out on the 10 other Spolstras that don't exist. Right, so then back to Harden, is replacing him less about literally replacing him and more about bringing, to bring it back to the original point, bringing out the best out of Maxi, a 22-year-old who is still ascending. The question I have more about Maxi is, does he have the innate in him? To me, that is a very hard thing to teach. I don't know that if Eric Spolstra, for instance, is the coach of the Philadelphia 76ers or Brad Stevens or Greg Popovich or anybody else out there that any listener thinks is a impactful, good head coach. I, they're not getting 
if it's not innately in you, I don't know that you're getting that out of a guy who just doesn't have it in them to give. There are certain people who just can't multitask. Right. I can't teach you to multitask. You either can or you can't. Right? Right. So then it goes back to is, you know, the people keep asking about, hey, can the Sixers go get Fred Van Vliet? But then Monica McNutt says, well, they need an impactful point guard. They don't need a James Harden. So is the idea, like, you know, in the documentary, you know, everything but the chip, is the idea, Mike, to say, hey, we got Eric Snow so Allen Iverson can go be AI? Um, It depends. James Harden didn't like his role last year. Is he going to want to play in that role again? He did lead the league in assists. I feel like we're devaluing that. He did. But is there somebody else who maybe instead of getting you 10 and a half assists a game that can get you – Eight and a half assists a game, but you can still win all these games because that guy is. I think the difference is this. You talked about Allen Iverson in everything but the chip. Allen Iverson in his Hall of Fame speech said, I had Larry Brown, and it wasn't until I let Larry Brown coach me, I finally became the MVP. I was already a great player, but when I let him coach me, I became the MVP of the league. Mm -hmm. I think James Harden is okay with being the MVP because he does it his way. I don't think James Harden is okay with being a championship player by doing it somebody else's way. And that might be the difference between him and a Allen Iverson. And that's why, to me, I'm saying if you let Harden go and you make Maxi, you open Maxi up to new possibilities, but you put someone next to Maxi who's maybe going to be the a little problem bit with that becomes. How do you acquire that player next to Maxi with the financial constraints that you're under because of Harden? So do you, then do you trust Daryl Morey is the question. That's the big one. And I think that Harden, uh, Maxi, I mean, <laughs> Morey, I think Morey has a move up his sleeve this summer because I believe that move that he has up his sleeve, in, in essence, is how he got nurse to agree to come here it's just me now it could be as much as getting Harden to come back sports bass live 97.3 espn the 97.3 espn free mobile app uh do you remember what's today june 5th got some good ones today sports bass live 97.3 espn the 97.3 espn free mobile app stick around now, without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional grade industrial supplies. Count on real time product availability and fast delivery. Call clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Bash on 97 ESPN. All right, 5.51, getting ready to wrap up the show. Before we go, do you remember some things that happened on this day? June the 5th is the day. It is a uh, day that many people will remember when this one play happened. I think we all kind of recall this was kind of the moment for one 
Michael Jordan. Uh, those of you who uh, are going back to about my age will remember Michael Jordan. A spectacular move by Michael Jordan. Switches hands midair. Bulls beat the Lakers in game number two. Jordan goes down the middle. He goes up with the right hand, switches over to the left. Probably one of the more signature moments of Jordan's career. It happened on this day in 1991. Do you remember? Yes, I remember the move, 1991. And by the way, 1991, I think I was, I don't know, uh, sophomore in high school maybe? I think so. So you're going back a ways for that Jordan thing now, man. Uh, 1994, I was a junior in high school. New York, the Knicks, Patrick Ewing, 24 points, 22 rebounds. They beat Indiana 94-90 at Madison Square Garden in Game 7 of the Eastern Conference Finals. The Knicks go to the NBA Finals for the first time since 1973. So you're going all the way back to 94 for the Knicks to get to the NBA Finals for the first time since 1973. Patrick Ewing, 24 points and 22 rebounds. I definitely remember that Game 7. Those Pacer teams, the Reggie Millers, Jalen Rose, Rick Smiths, Mark Jackson, those Pacers teams, they were always feisty, man. So do you remember? Yes, I remember. Do you remember Barry Bonds, 2001, homer for the 30th time in the 57th game of the season? He's the fastest player in MLB history to reach 30 homers in a season. One year later, on the same day, Bonds hits his 587th career home run. He passes Frank Robinson for fourth on the all-time home run lease. But it was on this day in 2001, Barry Bonds homered for the 30th time in the season. In the 57th game, he had 30 homers in 57 games. Right now, by the way, just to kind of give you some perspective, Home run leaders through about 56, 57, 58, 59 games, depending on where the team is. Pete Alonzo leads the way with 21 homers for the Mets. Barry Bonds had 30 on this day in 2001. Let's go to uh, 2008. Paul Pierce exits in a wheelchair in game one of the finals and comes back to win. You know why? He had a poop, basically. Yeah, and I, I love how he tried to spend so much time trying to act like that's not the reason why. And then finally he capitulated years later. Yep, he finally caved in and said he had to go to the bathroom. And that's why he got wheeled out in a wheelchair. He should just said that all along, man. <laughs> I mean, uh, it happened on this day in 2008. Do you remember? Uh, biggest one, though, the, the Jordan move against the Lakers in game two. I certainly remember that. I can't believe that it was 1991 that that happened. Makes me uh, feel really good today. All right, that's it. That's all I got. Uh, coming up, got uh, Stanley Cup game two tonight. Vegas in the house. You have it's, a rooting interest in this Stanley Cup? No, not at all. Don't care. Don't care at all. Eh, it's a shame. You know, I just, uh, I love where the Flyers are, where are relevant, make the playoffs. And, um, but I just, you know. Sometimes in life, you get to a point where things have to fall off your things. You know, hockey had to be one of them at a, at a, at a younger age, right? I just didn't have the time to pay attention. I used to tell you every goalie in the league and, you know, roll out all four lines for every team. I can't do that anymore. 
Vegas. I want Vegas to win. Hockey's out for me right now. When the Flyers back, maybe I'll get back in. I'll be back tomorrow. Frank Close answers your Phillies mailbag questions at 3 o'clock. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger. For the ones who get it done.